So this religion of Islam, for example, sometimes you come together and you study tafsir, for example. Tafsir is a science from the sciences of Islam. And sometimes you come together and you study, for example, fiqh. You study the laws relating to halal and haram and what is obligatory upon you and what is forbidden and what is recommended and what is disliked. And sometimes we come together to study the seerah of the Prophet And sometimes we come together to study the hadith of the Prophet The topic that we're going to be discussing today is a topic that has a few different names. Among the scholars are those who called it the topic of Iman, of faith and creed. Among them are those who called it the topic of Al-Fiqhul Akbar, the greater fiqh, and the great understanding of the religion. Among them are those who called it the topic of At-Tawheed, the oneness of Allah. And among them are those who called it the topic of Usul al-Din, the foundations of the religion. And among them are those who called it Ilmul Aqidah, the knowledge of creed. What a Muslim believes and what you hold to be true in your heart, giving truth to the speech of Allah Azza wa Jal and the statements of the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. We're also going to cover a little bit on the topic of Al-Firaq wal-Iftiraq, the topic of the existence of different groups and methodologies and how the Ummah has broken up, and how we can stay safe at the end of the day. This is meant to be a practical lesson, not a theoretical one, inshallah. How can we keep ourselves safe? And how can we keep ourselves upon the creed of the Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam? So that being said, inshallah ta'ala, we're going to start with a little bit of terminology. Now, have you guys heard the famous statement, La mushahata fil istilah? It doesn't matter what terminology people use, we're all talking about the same thing. I actually like the statement of Ibn al Qayyim, Rahimahullah ta'ala. He said something very powerful. He said, Well, istilahatu la mushahata fiha ida lam tatadamman mafsada. He said, Different people using different terminologies. There is no real harm in that, as long as it doesn't lead to something negative. So let me give you an example of a terminology which leads to something negative. If we take alcohol and we call it nabith, we call it like fruit juice or something like that, that's a negative thing, right? It's giving people the wrong impression. But if, for example, one of us calls a topic aqeedah, and the other one calls it iman, and the other one calls it usul al-sunnah or usul al-deen, all of that, inshallah, la mushahata fiha. There is no issue about it. There is no concern about it. There isn't anything, inshallah, to be worried about. These are terminologies that the ancient scholars of old, any the scholars of the earliest times, used to use. As for the word itself, if we use the word aqeedah, what does this word mean in the Arabic language? So generally it comes with the meaning of the word arrabt, tying something together. You all heard the ayah in which Allah says, وَمِن شَرِّ النَّفَّاثَاتِ فِي الْعُقَدِ 
from the from the evil of those people who blow onto the knots. Uqad. So it comes there with the meaning of tying. And it comes with the meaning of a covenant. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhalladina amanu awfu bil uqud. Uqud. Same root letters. And it comes with a meaning of mulazama, consistency and continuation. We say, Aqada qalbahu alay. The person's heart was set on it. Those who you have bound your oaths to give them their share. And it comes with the meaning of التوكيد, emphasis. As a person says, You made the problem complicated. And Allah Azza wa Jal says, Allah will impose blame upon you for what you certainly intended. So these words all come together to give us an understanding of something that we are tied to, something we are committed to, something we are certain about, something that we stick to continuously and regularly from the moment that we learn a principle or we learn an ayah or a hadith until the moment that we die. We remain firm and consistent and continuous upon it. In a technical sense, the word aqeedah can be used for the belief of any group, whether connected to Islam or unrelated to it. You can talk about the aqeedah of the Christians, the aqeedah of the Orthodox, the aqeedah of the Hindus. You can talk about any, the word just means the set of beliefs that the people hold, that make them who they are. But of course, it's not their beliefs we want to talk about today. We didn't come to talk about Christianity or any other religion. We came to talk about the beliefs that make you the Muslim that you are. The beliefs that are specific to Islam. Now, let me ask you a question. If I were to ask you, Describe for me, define for me, what do you think are the beliefs that make you who you are as a Muslim? What are the beliefs that define you as a Muslim? Just have a think about it to yourself. Just let the question go around in your head. What beliefs define me as a Muslim? You might say, for example, the six pillars of Iman. And tu'mina billahi wa malaikatihi wa kutubihi that I believe in Allah, I believe in the angels, I believe in the scripture, I believe in the prophets, I believe in the last day, and I believe in the divine decree, the good of it and the bad. Would it be fair to say that this is the majority of the beliefs that make you a Muslim? Would that be fair to say? I think it would be fair to say that the majority of the beliefs that define you as a Muslim, they come within the six pillars of Iman. What did the Prophet say about these pillars? Didn't he say, Atakum Jibreel, Jibreel came to you, He came to teach you the matters of your religion, that your religion all comes back to this. Your religion all comes back to 
the matter of believing in Allah properly and correctly, believing in the angels properly and correctly, believing in the scripture prophet properly and correctly, believing in the last day properly and correctly, believing in the divine decree and the prophets and so on, every one of them properly and correctly. And believing in the divine decree, the good of it and the bad of it, with the right belief, properly and correctly. This is what makes you the Muslim that you are. And this is what separates you from other beliefs, not only outside of Islam, but inside of Islam as well. So for example, we have Muslims in the world today who don't believe, for example, that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, as an example, we have people who attribute themselves to Islam, but they don't believe Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam is the last and final prophet, for example. Could that person be a Muslim? No. Even if they attribute themselves to Islam, and even if they say, I'm a Muslim, they couldn't be, right? So this issue is what defines you among the Muslims and what defines you with regard to other religions that exist. What makes you different from, for example, a Christian? For example, وَقَالُوا اتَّخَذَ اللَّهُ وَلَدَ they said Allah took a son. Exalted is Allah. For high is Allah above that. Everything in the heavens and the earth belongs to him. All of them submitting to him. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us the belief of a different group of people and he told us our belief and what it should be. But is it true to say that the six pillars of Iman represent every single thing that a Muslim has to believe? Or are there other beliefs mentioned in the Quran and the Sunnah when we go through them that are also important? There are other beliefs. We could slot them into the six pillars of Iman. For example, as, let me give you an example. Our belief about the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. Our belief that the Sahaba radiallahu anhum were righteous. Our belief that the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, Allah promised them paradise. Our belief that the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, all of them were beloved to Allah azza wa jal, and all of them were trustworthy and righteous. Is that not part of what we would say defines us as a Muslim? Doesn't it separate us from another group of people who might claim Islam for themselves? It does, right? So these belief, these beliefs that come from the Quran and the Sunnah and that which the early Muslims agreed upon, they are what define you as a Muslim and they are what separate you from other religions and separate you from other groups inside of Islam. So if this is the case, if this is the case, maybe we can take from the importance of Aqeedah, maybe as it relates to the importance of Aqeedah, we can take a point. Aqeedah is what defines you as a Muslim, and it's what separates you from other religions, and it's what separates you from other groups within Islam. Now, I'm not talking about right and wrong here. I'm not talking about who is right or who is wrong. Anybody's Aqeedah separates them. Even the wrong belief separates the people from the right belief. 
So this is a part of why it is so important. As for the use of this word in the Sunnah, Ad-Darimi rahimahullahu ta'ala narrated in his Sunan from Zayd ibn Thabitin radiyallahu an that he heard the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam say, لا يعتقد قلب مسلم على ثلاث خصال إلا دخل الجنة قال قلت ما هن قال إخلاص العمل والنصيحة لولاة الأمر ولزوم الجماعة فإن he said فإن دعوتهم تحيط من وراءهم أو كما قال there is no Muslim heart that has the aqidah يعتقدوا it has the aqidah of three attributes, except that they will enter paradise. Zayd said, I said, what are they? He said, sincerity in action, sincere advice in those in authority, and sticking to the jama'ah. For if you call the leaders to truth, you encompass those who are behind them. I had a question about this hadith. Do you think that this hadith, the word aqidah that comes here, ya'taqidu, it comes with the full meaning that we described or it comes with a part of it. It comes with a part of it, right? It doesn't come with the meaning of the pillars of Iman and the angels and the books. It comes with a part of that meaning. So the meaning here is close to the linguistic meaning. Your heart is settled upon it and you are firm upon it. You are stuck to it. It defines who you are. So holding on to it. Abu Ubaid al-Qasim ibn Sallam, he said, فَعَمَلُ الْقَلْبِ الْإِعْتِقَادِ He said, the actions of the heart are your aqidah. Again, do you think that this statement is a comprehensive term for aqidah? I think here it's still somewhat, it's still somewhat linguistic. It's still not quite the full meaning. So when do we start to get the full meaning? Perhaps we can say among the first of the people is Abu Ja'far, Ahmad ibn Muhammad, At-Tahawi, the illustrious Imam, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. He died 321 after the Hijrah. When he said in his Aqeedah, Al-Aqeedah At-Tahawiyyah, he said, هذا ذكر بيان عقيدة أهل السنة والجماعة على مذهب فقهاء الملة أبي حنيفة النعمان بن ثابت الكوفي وأبي يوسف يعقوب بن إبراهيم الأنصاري وأبي عبد الله محمد بن الحسن الشيباني رضوان الله عليهم أجمعين وما يعتقدون من أصول الدين ويدينون به رب العالمين. This is one of the first times that we have this word being used in its full meaning here. الطحاوي he says. This is the aqeedah of Ahl al-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. At-Tahawi, he says it. This is the aqeedah of Ahl al-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. Upon the madhab of the fuqaha of this religion, Abu Hanifa and Nu'man ibn Thabit al-Kufi and Abu Yusuf, Abu Yusuf Ya'qub ibn Ibrahim al-Ansari and Abu Abdullah Muhammad ibn al-Hassan al-Shaybani. May Allah be pleased with them all. وَمَا يَعْتَقِدُونَ مِنْ أُصُولِ الدِّينِ the points from the foundations of the religion that they had as their aqeedah, and that which they come close to Allah in worship with. So this is one of the examples. Abu Hatim al-Razi, 
rahimahullah ta'ala, 327 after the Hijrah, he used it. Al-Lalaka'i after that. Al-Bayhaqi, 458 after the Hijrah. All of them used this word like this. But this wasn't the only word that the scholars of that time used. At-Tahawi chose it. He called it Aqeedah and he said, Ya Ataqidun, this is the Aqeedah that Abu Hanifa had. But others used other words. From the words that they used is the word At-Tawheed. Who used this word At-Tawheed? Who used this word? A number of different scholars used this word. A number of them wrote, for example, Kitab At-Tawheed by Ibn Khuzayma, for example. He wrote a book, he called it Kitab At-Tawheed. And others among the scholars of the early times who used this word. So what does this word mean then? How is it different from the word Aqeedah? So it comes from Wahada Yuwahidu Tawheedah. And it means to make something one or to believe something to be one. Is this mentioned in the hadith? Yes, we have the hadith of Jabir in Sahih Muslim. The Prophet called out with the words of Tawheed, Labbaik Allahumma Labbaik, O Allah, I have answered your call. Labbaik la sharika laka labbaik, I have answered your call, there is no partner with you. As for the technical definition, it is to testify that none deserves to be worshipped except Allah. And this can be seen from the hadith of Mu'adh ibn Jabal radiallahu an, in which the Prophet said, he said, إِنَّكَ تَقْدَمُ عَلَىٰ قَوْمٍ مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ فَلْيَكُنْ أَوَّلَ مَا تَدْعُوهُمْ إِلَيْهِ أَنْ يُوَحِّدُ اللَّهِ Or he said, إِلَىٰ أَنْ يُوَحِّدُ اللَّهِ You are going, this is in Sahih al-Bukhari, you are going to a people of the book, let the first thing that you call them to be the Tawheed of Allah. And the hadith is in Sahih al-Bukhari. Let the first thing you call them to be the Tawheed of Allah. Another hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari with this, a slightly different wording. فَلْيَكُنْ أَوَّلَ مَا تَدْعُوهُمْ إِلَيْهِ عِبَادَةُ اللَّهِ Let the first thing you call them to be worshipping Allah. What does that tell you? Two hadith in Bukhari from the same Sahabi. One of them says Tawheed and one of them says Ibadah. What does that tell you? That the understanding of Tawheed that was present among the Sahaba and those who came after them in the early times is that the meaning of Tawheed is Ifradullahi bil ibadah. It is to single out Allah in ibadah, in worship. And that's why the two narrations came with alternative wordings. And Yuwahidullah, ibadatullah. To make Tawheed of Allah and to worship Allah alone. Abu Hanifa. Rahimahullah ta'ala, remember he died 150 years after the hijrah. He said, Wallahu yud'a min a'la la min asfal, li'anna al-asfala laysa min wasfir rububiyyati wal-uluhiyyati fi shay. Abu Hanifa alayhi rahmatullah, he said, Allah is made dua to above, not below. When you make dua to Allah, Allah is above, not below. Because being underneath has nothing to do with al-rububiyyah or al-uluhiyyah. It has nothing to do with lordship and it has nothing to do with worship. This is in al-fiqh, al-absat. Al-Tabari, he also said, commenting on the ayah, فَعْلَمْ أَنَّهُ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ وَاسْتَغْفِرْ لِذَنْبِكَ 
وَالْمُؤْمِنَاتِ He said regarding this ayah, فَعْلَمْ يَا مُحَمَّدٍ At-Tabari, when did At-Tabari die? 310 years after the Hijrah. At-Tabari, he said, No, O Muhammad, there is no object of worship that is befitting or deserving of being worshipped or it is allowed for the creation to worship except Allah. The one who is the creator of creation and the sovereign of everything and everyone submits to his lordship. We'll also bring the statement of At-Tahawi. When did At-Tahawi rahimahullah ta'ala die 321 after the Hijrah? He said, continuing on in his aqidah from Abi Hanifa rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, نَقُولُ فِي تَوْحِيدِ اللَّهِ مُعْتَقِدِينَ بِتَوْفِيقِ اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ وَاحِدٌ لَا شَرِيكَ لَهُ وَلَا شَيْءَ مِثْلُهُ وَلَا شَيْءَ يُعْجِزُهُ وَلَا إِلَهَ غَيْرُهُ Many of us memorize this. If you haven't, it's a very good method to memorize Al-Aqidah Al-Tahawiyah. He said, we say about the Tawheed of Allah with our Aqidah, Mu'taqidina, with the help of Allah, that Allah is one, He has no partner. There is nothing like him, nothing can escape him, and nothing deserves to be worshipped except him. What is the opposite then of Tawheed? Because we're just talking about names for Iman and Tawheed and Aqidah and Usul al-Deen. We're talking about this subject, trying to get an understanding of where it's taking us. The opposite of it is a shirk, right? The opposite of it is a shirk. Didn't Allah Azza wa Jal say, Whoever makes a partner with Allah, Allah made Jannah haram for them and their place will be the hellfire and they will not have besides Allah any helper for the oppressive people. Why am I mentioning this? I'm trying to tell you the importance of the subject. It's so important that Allah said, if you make a mistake in it and you worship other than Allah, فَقَدْ حَرَّمَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ الْجَنَّةِ Allah made Jannah haram for them. Allah said to our messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, وَلَقَدْ أُوحِيَ إِلَيْكَ وَإِلَى الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبَلِكَ لَإِنْ أَشْرَكْتَ لَيَحْبَطَنَّ عَمَلُكَ وَلَتَكُونَنَّ مِنَ الْخَاسِرِينَ بَلِ اللَّهَ فَعْبُدْ Allah said, we certainly reveal to you, O Muhammad, and we reveal to the prophets who came before you, that if you made a partner with Allah, we would have destroyed your deeds, and you would have been from the losers. So worship Allah and be from those who are grateful. Subhanallah, Allah would have destroyed all of the good deeds of our Messenger وسلم, if he had made a partner with Allah. And that shows you how serious this topic is. From that which shows you how serious this topic is, is the statement of Ibrahim that Allah told us about in the Quran. Keep me and my children away from worshipping idols. 
So this is something of great importance, my brothers and sisters. Why I'm telling you this is so you appreciate how serious this issue is and how vital this subject is. And maybe you question, why is this subject not being given the importance that it should be given? Because wallahi, there is no subject more important than the topic of Iman, Aqeedah, and Usul al-Deen. Because this is the difference between Jannah and Jahannam. And it is the difference between Islam and disbelief. And it is the thing which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not accept any ibadah without it. As we have heard in these ayats. So let's just give a, a brief explanation. What is shirk? I think, to be honest, one of the best definitions that I like for it. An yusrafa li ghayri allahi ma huwa mahtu haqqillah min rububiyyatin wa uluhiyyatin wa asma'in wa sifatin. This is a good definition. That you divert something that is Allah's right alone. You divert something that is Allah's right alone. Whether to do with his lordship, to do with his worship, or his names and attributes. You give it to someone else. Something that is Allah's right alone, and you give it to someone else. For example, it is Allah's right alone for sajda, right? Are we as Muslims allowed to make sajda to other than Allah? We're not allowed to make sajda to other than Allah, right? If you saw someone making sajda to a tree or an idol or something like that, or making sajda to a picture, you would, be, you would physically stop them from doing it. You would make inkar, ashadd al-inkar, the, the most strong kind of rebuke for them. So if a person diverts this sajda that is only for Allah to other than Allah, they have given something that was only for Allah to someone else. And Allah Azza wa Jal, He told us that the one who makes a partner with Him, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَغْفِرُ أَنْ يُشْرَكَ بِهِ وَيَغْفِرُ مَا دُونَ ذَلِكَ لِمَنْ يَشَاءُ Allah doesn't forgive you to make a partner with Him, but He forgives whatever is less than that for whoever He wills. I wanted to just take a moment, if I may, just as a side point, sometimes we break for a little side point. How did people start worshiping other than Allah? Because Adam came to the earth, and Adam, who did he worship? Allah, right? Everyone agrees, Adam, alayhi salatu wasalam, he worshiped Allah. And Adam's children, they worshiped Allah. And their children, they worshiped Allah. And their children worshiped Allah. Asharat al for 10 generations, this is in a hadith. The hadith is narrated by Ibn Hibban. Abi Umama radiallahu anhu, he asked the Prophet Ya Rasulullah, a nabiyun kana Adam. Was Adam a prophet? Qala na'am, mukallam. Allah spoke to him. Qal, fakam kana baynahu wa bayna Nuh. How much was between Adam and Nuh? Qal, asharat al-qurun. There were 10 generations. The hadith narrated by Ibn Hibban and Al-Hakim, and he said, Sahihun ala shati Muslim, and Al-Dhahabi agreed with him. So what happened? Abdullah ibn Abbas narrates in a long hadith, but I'm just going to summarize it for you. With regard to the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, وَقَالُوا لَا تَذَرُنَّ آلِهَتَكُمْ وَلَا تَذَرُنَّ وَدًّا وَلَا سُوَاعًا وَلَا يَغُوثَ وَيَعُوكَ وَنَسْرًا they said, don't leave your gods and don't leave Wad or Suwa' or Yaghuth and Ya'uq and Nasr. 
Abdullah ibn Abbas, he narrated the summary of which is that these were righteous people. And these righteous people, what happened to them is they passed away. And when they passed away, what happened? Shaitan came to the people and said, you don't want to forget these people. They were awliya. They were righteous men. You don't want to forget them. Make a picture by which you can remember these people. And later the picture became a statue. And the statue became worshipped. Look at how the shaitan took them darakat, yani, down the stairs, step by step by step. Through what? Through al-ghuluwu fi salihin exaggerating about righteous people, making, putting righteous people too much. That's why the Prophet wasallam said, don't exaggerate about me like the Christians exaggerate about Ibn Maryam salam. So say, I am Abdullahi wa Rasuluh. I am the slave of Allah and his messenger. The scholars, they say, Abdun fala yu'bad. He is a servant, so he's never worshipped. And he's a Rasul, so we never disobey him. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So it came to the people in what? Al-ghuluf al-salihin. Exaggerating about righteous people and just bringing it too far and exaggerating too much about the righteous people until they ended up being an object of worship besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. From the words which the scholars use is the word Iman. And this is the oldest word to refer to Aqeedah that is used in the Quran and the Sunnah. What does it mean in Arabic? To me, the word Iman, it's not just tasdiq, it's not just believing. It's not just believing. It is something which requires affirmation. It is belief and affirming and acting and implementing that belief. It is the things that you believe in your heart, the actions that you do, the things that you say, all of it is a part of your Iman. And I'm going to talk about a couple of points in that. Iman in reality covers five things. It covers five things. It covers qawlul qalb. The scholars, they say the statements of the heart. This is your aqeedah. This is what we're talking about here. Aqeedah is qawlul qalb. What your heart has the statements that are present in your heart. And what else does it cover? It covers amalul qalb, the actions of the heart. What are the actions of the heart? Like loving Allah, fearing Allah, trusting in Allah, hoping in Allah. These are actions of the heart. And the statements of the tongue, qawlul lisan. What's qawlul lisan? Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammadar Rasulullah. And it covers amalul lisan, the actions of the tongue. What are the actions of the tongue? The actions of the tongue, like dhikr, like reciting the Quran, like giving the salam. And it covers amalul jawarih, the actions of the limbs. Many of the early scholars, they named their books of Aqeedah, books of Iman. Like Abu Ubaid, Qasim ibn Salam, he has a book called Kitab al-Iman. Ibn Abi Shayba has a book called Kitab al-Iman. And al-Bukhari also took a book in his Sahih called Kitab al-Iman. So they, when they were talking about it, they used the word Iman. Some of them used the word Usul al-Din. 
We heard Al-Tahawi rahimahullah ta'ala in his aqeedah وَمَا يَعْتَقِدُونَ مِنْ أُصُولِ الدِّينَ So Al-Tahawi calls it Usul al-Din, the fundamentals of the religion. And this tells you that the religion is built upon it. Abu al-Hasan al-Ash'ari, rahimahullah ta'ala, he has al-Ibana and usul al-Diyana. Likewise, Ibn Batta has al-Sharh wal-Ibana ala usul ahli sunnah and usul al-Sunnah wal-Itiqad al-Din by Abu Hatim al-Razi, rahimahullah al-Jami'ah. These are all people who called Aqeedah with the name Usul al-Din. They use the words, the fundamentals of the religion. Why are we going through this? Because we're understanding how important it is. If it is the thing which covers Tawheed, and Tawheed is what defines Jannah from the fire. If it is the thing which covers the foundations of your religion and your whole religion is built upon it. If it is the thing which you are stuck to and tied to and defines you as a Muslim. So we're getting the importance of it. And many of them use the word as Sunnah. They use the word as sunnah, like Usul al-Sunnah by Imam Ahmed and Usul al-Sunnah wa'atiqad al-Din by Abu Hatim al-Razi, al-Sunnah by Ibn Abi Asim, al-Sunnah by al-Marwazi, Sarih al-Sunnah by al-Tabari and Sharh al-Sunnah by al-Barbahari. All of them, rahimahullah ta'ala, rahimahumullah ta'ala, they use the word as-Sunnah for it. Al-Imam Malik, rahimahullah ta'ala, said as-Sunnah to mithru safinati nuh. He said the sunnah is like the ship of Nuh. Whoever climbs aboard will be saved and whoever stays behind will be destroyed. The sunnah here, he's talking about, he's not talking about sunnah prayers. He's not talking about sunnah actions. He's not talking about the miswak. Here he's talking about sunnah meaning usul al-deen and the issues of belief. Some of the scholars like Al-Imam Abi Hanifa rahimullah ta'ala, they use the word Al-Fiqh Al-Akbar. What does that tell you, Al-Fiqh Al-Akbar? It tells you that the word Fiqh in Islam is a general word for understanding Islam, right? مَن يُرِدِ اللَّهُ بِهِ خَيْرًا يُفَقِّهُ فِي الدِّينَ The hadith of Muawiyah radiallahu anhu. مَن يُرِدِ اللَّهُ بِهِ خَيْرًا يُفَقِّهُ فِي الدِّينَ Whoever Allah wants good for, He gives him Fiqh in the religion. He gives him Fiqh. Fiqh here, does it mean Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi'i, Hanbali. No, it doesn't here. Fiqh here means comprehensive understanding. So here, Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, he divides fiqh into two. Fiqhun akbar wa fiqhun asar. Al-fiqh al-akbar, it is the fiqh which is usul al-deen aqeedah. And the lesser fiqh is the fiqh of the actions and behaviors. Why is it less? Because it's important, right? Fiqh is extremely important subject. And we know Abu Hanifa's dedication, rahimahullah, to fiqh. So why is it less important than usul al-deen? Because ultimately your fiqh is about how you act, right? You're learning how to pray and make wudu and fast. And none of that will be accepted if you have serious errors in usul al-deen. Is that clear? For example, if you're making a partner with Allah and you're making dua to other than Allah, it doesn't matter how many times you pray or how good your prayer is it wouldn't be accepted by Allah Azza wa Jal. And we've quoted the evidences for that. So this is all part of understanding how important it is. And some of the scholars, they called it al-shari'ah, like al-ajurri, rahimahullah ta'ala, in his book, Kitab al-shari'ah. The whole sharia, they called it, like as if it is the whole of Islam. It's the sharia. And they didn't call it the sharia to fiqh, they called it ad-deenu kulluhu wal-i'tiqad. 
So from these things, we have taken some importance. We've realized that what we're going to talk about is pretty important. Allah Azza wa Jal said, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ I only created the jinn and the men to worship me. That's what Allah said, right? Surah Al-Dhariyat. I only created the jinn and the men to worship me. And in the end of Surah Al-Talaq, what did Allah say? Allahu alladhi khalaqa sab'a samawati wa min al-ardi mislahun yatanazzalu al-amru baynahunna li ta'lamu anna Allah ala kulli shay'in qadir wa anna Allah qad ahata bi kulli shay'in ilma. Allah created the seven heavens and the earth's the like of them. His command goes between them so that you may know. Yani the whole, everything you see outside, the heavens, the earth, everything was created for you to know Allah. Knowing Allah, which part of Islam does it come into? Knowing Allah, does it come into fiqh? It doesn't come in the books of fiqh. Am I wrong? It doesn't come in the books of the madahib, the books of fiqh, about Allah's names and attributes and who is Allah and how to get close to Allah. It doesn't come. It comes in aqeedah. So this thing that Allah created the heavens and the earth for you to know him, is a topic from the topics of Aqeedah. Worshipping Allah alone is a topic from the topics of Aqeedah. So Allah created you to worship Him alone, and Allah created the heavens and the earth for you to know Allah, to know His names and His attributes. My dear brothers and sisters, how many times in the Quran does Allah talk about Masailul Iman, matters of Iman? Wallahi, the Quran, you can maybe not even find an ayah. Or maybe you can't even find half a page that doesn't talk about the issues of Iman and Aqeedah. I'm trying to show the importance of the topic. Look, open the Quran. Well, don't, don't say Muhammad Tim is saying, open the Quran and find any page. You're going to find Allah's names, Allah's attributes. You're going to find information about Allah and about who Allah is and what Allah does and his names and attributes and actions, you're going to find this in any part of the Qur'an. Take the most important surah in the Qur'an. What is it? Fatiha, right? Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, Maliki Yawmiddin, Iyaka Na'budu wa Iyaka Nasta'een, Ihdina Sirat Al-Mustaqeem, Sirat Al-Ladheena An'amta Alayhim Ghayr Al-Maghtubi Alayhim Walad Dalim. Tell me in this, where is the Ahkam Al-Wudu? Where is the Fiqh of Talaq? Where is the issues of a riba buying and selling and the issues of interest and usury? It's not there. Surah Al-Fatiha, which is the most important surah in the whole Quran, all of it is aqeedah. About Allah's names and attributes and worshipping Him alone and keeping away from who? غير المغضوب عليهم والضالين Who did the Prophet ﷺ say المغضوب عليهم والضالين? اليهود والنصارى so keeping away from the Yahud and Nasara, which chapter of Islam does it come into? Aqeedah. It's a matter of Aqeedah, not having their Aqeedah, being different from their Aqeedah. The whole of Surah Al-Fatiha from beginning to end is Aqeedah. Okay, leave Surah Al-Fatiha. Let's talk about the greatest ayah in the book of Allah. What is the ayah? Allahu la ilaha illa huwa al-hayyul qayyum. The greatest ayah in the book of Allah. This ayah from beginning to end, where is the ruling of salah in it? Where is the number of raka'at to pray for dhuhr? Where is the issues of purification or the issues of hajj or how to fast? The greatest ayah is in Allah's names and attributes. There are between, I don't 
19 or something like that of Allah's names and attributes that are mentioned in this ayah over and over again, a large number, yeah. between 10 and 20, a big number of uh, asma or sifat that are mentioned for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Does it make sense, my brothers and sisters, that the greatest ayah in the book of Allah was sent down and we don't have any idea what it means? The greatest ayah was sent down in the book of Allah and it has no relation to us or no benefit. The greatest ayah was sent down in the book of Allah and we shouldn't study it because we might get misguided. It doesn't make any sense. The greatest ayah in the book of Allah is all about Allah and his names and who he is. All of it from beginning to end. The surah that everyone knows the Prophet ﷺ used to praise and the one who loves it and that Allah loves them. All of it's aqeedah. About who Allah is, Allah is one. Allah has no partner. Allah doesn't need everyone and everyone needs him. Allah has never had a son or a child and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was never born and there is nothing that is similar or equal to him. All of it's aqeedah. So we need to know how important this topic is. We can't worship Allah properly without the right belief in Allah Azza wa And that's not to detract, my dear brothers and sisters, from the value of Al-Tafsir, Wal-Hadith, Wal-Fiqh, they're very important. Khayrukum man ta'allama al-Qur'ana wa'allama. The best of you are those who learn the Qur'an and teach it. We know the virtue of the Hadith, we're going to talk about it later on, inshaAllah ta'ala. We know the virtue of understanding what is permissible and impermissible in this religion. But I'm just showing you that this topic is a topic worthy of our attention and worthy of us to give it consideration and worthy of us to give it thought. My dear brothers and sisters, where do we take this aqidah from? And here we're going to say something that is going to separate us from some people. Because I said to you, aqidah, I mean, it's a little, there is one thing you have to be aware, it separates you, which means that it's going to make you different from someone else. Where do we take our aqidah from? We take it from Kitabullah. The book of Allah Azza wa Jal. وَمَا ثَبَتَ مِن سُنَّةِ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ And that which is authentically reported from the sunnah. وَمَا أَجْمَ عَلَيْهِ سَلَفُ الْأُمَّةِ And what the earliest Muslims agreed upon. That's what we take our aqeedah from. Yes, for sure we have a fitrah. مَا مِن مَوْلُودٍ إِلَّا يُولَدُ عَلَى الْفِتْرَةِ Every single person is born naturally. That's true. But in general, our sources of aqeedah, they are the Qur'an and the authentic sunnah and what the earliest Muslims agreed upon. The Qur'an and the sunnah and what the early Muslims agreed upon. Because you and I all agree, everyone in this room agrees the Sahaba were guided, right? All of us agree. Ulaikallah <laughs> They are the ones Allah guided, so take their guidance as your guidance. What did Allah say? If the new people come to Islam, believe the same as the people who are already in Islam, they are rightly guided. And if they turn away, they are only going to be in disarray and disagreement. They're only going to be in disarray and they're only going to be in disagreement. So we now take our belief 
our iman. We understand it from the Quran. And we understand it from the sunnah of the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that which is authentic from it. And we understand it from the companions and those who followed them in good. That for me is a simple concept. I don't think it needs a lot of time. But would you believe there are so many people who would vehemently disagree with you? They would say, no, 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 don't say that to me. We don't take our aqidah, taking your aqidah from the Quran and the Sunnah and what the early generations agreed upon, this is khatir, it's dangerous, don't do that. Some of them take it from al-aql. They say al-aql fawq al-naql. They say your intellect has precedence over the Quran. Ta'ala Allah amma yaquluna uluwan kabira. High is Allah above what they say. That your intellect takes precedence over the Quran. To the point that I heard one of their imams say, you people are knuckleheads. Because you take the knuckle, you take the Quran and you leave the intellect. Ikhwan, your intellect is important. Don't get me wrong. Your intellect, it guides you and it takes you to understand the Quran. But let me give you an example. One of the scholars gave it a beautiful example. Here I am and I'm sick. I'm not well. And I go to someone and say to that person, can you tell me a good doctor? He says, yeah, sure. There's a good doctor in this city. Just go over and see this good doctor. And this doctor will tell you what you need to do, inshallah, and the medicine you need to take. Okay. When I go to the doctor, I come back to that man. He says, did you go to the doctor? I said, yeah. The doctor told me, he said, don't do it. Don't do that stuff. No, 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 don't listen to the doctor. Would you do that? You would say, who are you? You are just a man. And you taught, yes, you showed me the doctor, but you can't now tell me not to listen to him. This is the example of the aql. Your mind, your intellect, Allah gave it to you and it took you and you understood the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. But now what you find in the Quran and the Sunnah, you don't go back to your intellect and ask, is the Quran correct? Is the Sunnah correct? You don't need to go back. Now you found the truth, that's where you take it from. We don't take it from a dhawq, what tastes nice and what feels right. Some people say, look, it just feels right. I worship Allah like this because it just feels nice. It feels good. We don't take it from a siyasa, politics. We don't take it from anywhere other than qala Allah wa qala Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Allah said, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, and we understand those things in the light of the early generations. Why? Why the Sahaba? We said the Quran says that their belief was correct. Okay. Why the next generation? Didn't the Prophet say, The best generation is my generation. Then those who came after and then those who came after them. So we look to the likes of the great Imams of Islam. We ask ourselves, what did Abu Hanifa rahimahullah ta'ala believe? What did Malik rahimahullah ta'ala believe? What did Ash-Shafi'i? Rahimahullah ta'ala believe. What did Al-Imam Ahmed believe? Someone said, can you mix them like that? Because here we're not talking about fiqh. We're not talking about madhab. We're not talking about where you put your hands. We're talking about who is Allah. We're talking about the angels. We're talking about the last day. And what you will find is that by and large, the early generations barely differed with each other in the matters of belief at all. The difference came later on, much later on. As it grew in the, in the Ummah, then books were written to correct the people's belief and bring it back to what the Prophet ﷺ taught us, what the Sahaba were upon. And all of us agree, all of us should say, 
that the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba, they were upon the right way. They were on the right path. So if we can reach that understanding of Allah, and we can reach that understanding of the pillars of Iman, then inshallah, we are going to be on the right path as well. That's what we're striving for. And I'm not here to say to you that I have it. That's not, nobody can claim such a thing. But only to say that that's what we should all be working towards. What did Allah tell us? What did the Prophet ﷺ tell us? And what did the early Muslims agree upon? In case you're interested about this issue of using your mind to understand what to believe about Allah, I would like to quote you something from the Imam and the illustrious Qadi Abu Yusuf Ya'qub ibn Ibrahim al-Ansari al-Hanafi rahimahullah ta'ala, the, the noble student of Abu Hanifa. He said, وَكَيْفَ يُدْرَكُ التَّوْحِيدِ بِالْقِيَاسِ وَهُوَ خَالِقُ الْخَلْقِ بِخِلَافِ الْخَلْقِ لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٌ تَبَارَكَ وَتَعَالَى He said, how can you understand Tawheed through analogy? And through using your brain, using your mind. When Allah is the one who created creation and he's different from creation, meaning that you can't compare Allah to anything. You can't compare Allah to something because Allah, there is nothing like him. He said, وَقَدْ أَمَرَكَ اللَّهُ عَزَّ وَجَلْ أَن تُؤْمِنَ بِكُلِّ مَا أَتَى بِهِ نَبِيُّهُ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ فَقَالَ قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا النَّاسِ إِنِّي رَسُولُ اللَّهِ إِلَيْكُمْ جَمِيعًا الَّذِي لَهُ مُلْكُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا هُوَ يُحْيِي وَيُمِيتْ فَآمِنُوا بِاللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ النَّبِيِّ الْأُمِّي Allah has commanded you, this is a statement of Abu Yusuf. Allah has commanded you to believe in everything that his Prophet ﷺ sent. He said, O mankind, I am the messenger to you all. The one who sent me is the owner of the heavens and the earth. There is no one who deserves to be worshipped but him. He gives life and causes death. So believe in Allah, take Iman in Allah and have Iman in his Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the unlettered prophet who believes in Allah and Allah's words and follow him so you might be guided. He said, فَقَدْ أَمَرَكَ اللَّهُ عَزَّ وَجَلُّ بِأَن تَكُونَ تَابِعًا سَامِعًا مُطِيعًا Allah commanded you to follow the Prophet He commanded you to listen to what the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said and he commanded you to obey. Wallah, these words are golden words from Imam Al-Qadi Abi Yusuf. He said, Allah commanded you to follow and hear and obey. Notice he didn't say Allah commanded you to reason and reflect and think. Allah commanded you to follow and hear and obey. And then he said, وَلَوْ يُوَسَّعُ عَلَى الْأُمَّةِ he said, if people started to seek out Tawheed and Iman by their opinions and by their analogies and by their desires, they would be misguided. أَلَمْ تَسْمَعْ إِلَىٰ قَوْلِ اللَّهِ عَزَّ وَجَلُّ أَهْوَاءَهُمْ لَفَسَدَتِ السَّمَاوَاتُ وَالْأَرْضُ وَمَنْ فِيهِنْ فَثْهَمْ مَا فُسِّرَ بِهِ ذَلِكَ He said, if the truth were to follow the desires of the people, 
the heavens and the earth and everything in them would be ruined. So he's telling you clearly, you cannot take your aqidah from a ra'i. Now remember, Abu Yusuf is from the madhab of Ashab al-Ra'i in general. And he was someone who used his intellect and reasoning to come to the correct opinion in Islam. Is that not true? He was from Ashab al-Ra'i, right? The people who used their reasoning and intellect and intelligence and deduction to come to the truth about the matters of fiqh. He's telling you, you cannot take aqidah from this. Your aqidah, you take it from as-sama'. You hear it and you obey. You have, you are. Takuna tabi'an, sami'an, muti'a. You follow, you hear, you obey. So this is an important thing for you to understand where we take this belief from. What causes people to leave this belief before we come into, before we come into, inshallah, any the... Uh, the ayat that we want to talk about and the hadith we want to talk about today, what causes a person to leave this belief? Any what causes people to go astray? The first thing is al-ghulu, al-ifratu, wa-tafriq. Exaggerating in the religion, going too far or too less. We know the Prophet Sallallahu we said, he said, do not exaggerate with regard to me like the Christians exaggerated with regard to Isa ibn Maryam. And he said, Say what you came to say, but don't say any more than that. When they started to exaggerate with him, they said, Sayyiduna wa ibn Sayyidina. They started to exaggerate. He said, Just come and say what you came to say. Don't exaggerate. We heard the story of the people of Nuh, and we talked about other things, all of which show that ghulu, going to exaggeration, either too less or too much more, this leads to a person going away from the kitab and the sunnah. Misguidance and following desires. Allah Azza wa Jal joined between these two in Surah Al-Najm. So Allah mentioned Adhan, like they're just following their opinion. They don't have knowledge, yani. they're not sure about it. They don't have yaqeen about their belief. They're following Dhan, yani they're following their ideas. anfus, And they're following their desires. So following wrong ideas and following your desires are two things that take away from a person's correct following. From the things that take away from someone's correct following is Kaidu al Islam, the plots of the non-Muslims. Don't think that the non-Muslims are not trying in many ways, deliberately or accidentally, yani, to take you away from your belief. What did Allah Azza the Jews and Christians will never be happy with you till you follow their religion. Now this following their religion, is it aqidah or not? It's aqidah, right? Following their religion. So they're trying to take you away from the pure belief of Islam to a different belief. And my dear brothers, I know a lot of, you know, voice notes going around and people saying things, but they misunderstood what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say that many times the aqidah of the Muslims got affected by Jews Christians, uh, Magians, 
Hindus, Buddhists, Greek philosophers, all of them have at times influenced certain groups of Muslims in their aqidah. And I believe this is a historical fact, Ikhwani. I'm not saying something to you that is my right. This is a historical fact. Do you not see that Abdullah ibn Sabah al-Munafiq, didn't he found, for example, the Shia? And didn't he found, for example, the Khawarij? He stirred up the Khawarij, for example, two deviant groups that existed in Islam. He stirred them up, right? He was part of the people who influenced them and stirred them up. When they came to rebel against Uthman and he stirred them to rebel and then they went back and they went again and they killed Uthman and then eventually the group grew until it became a sect and then they killed Ali ibn Abi Talib This group that killed Ali ibn Abi Talib was founded by the Munafiqeen. That's a historical fact. It was founded by the Munafiqeen. So what I'm telling you is it's dangerous out there. We live in a non-Muslim country. Alhamdulillah, we live with safety, we live comfort, we pray, we practice our religion. But still, there are influences upon us in our lives that we might not be aware of. Have you ever seen people who live close to another religious group? This is just something like, you know, waqi in real life. Look at any group of Muslims who live close to another religious group. What do you see? you see the other religious groups' beliefs start to creep into them. Just start to copy. Whoever resembles the people is one of them. So you start to see these things just creeping in. For example, people who lived along with Hindus for a long time, look at the weddings. The weddings look the same. I mean, they wear the same clothes and they do the same things. And you know, the only difference is the imam comes for one. And I'm saying that people are affected by other religions. If you look at Asham, where Christians have lived for a very long time, no doubt the people in some of their akhlaq and their behaviors and some of their beliefs absorbed some of the things from the people living around them. We know the Prophet said, I'm free of the one who lives between the non-Muslims. This is something that it affects you, whether you like it or not. So all I'm saying is we look at our belief and make sure that our belief is true to the Quran and the Sunnah and make sure that it hasn't got affected by other beliefs and other religions, especially when we know that, that they would quite like it to be like that. From the reasons that cause people to go astray is sunana man kana qablana. And this is specific, it's kind of similar to the last one, but it's kind of specific. The Prophet said, You're going to follow the ways of the people before you. Why do you think Allah told us so much about Bani Israel? Have you ever reflected? The story of Musa comes in the Quran again and again and again and again. Why so much about Bani Israel? Because the Prophet said, You're going to follow them. You're going to start to implement and, and follow them. So let's tell you about them so you can keep away from it. Like Hudayfa radiallahu anhu used to say, he said, كان الناس يسألون رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم عن الخير وكنت أسأله عن الشر مخافة أن يدركني He said the people used to ask the Prophet about good and I used to ask him about evil so it doesn't happen to me. I don't want it to happen to me. Fawallahi, it's not something for a person to take as a personal insult. 
but for a person, every one of us, to look at our beliefs that we hold and the practices we do and make sure they came from the Quran and the Sunnah and the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. And if they did, hani and mari'ah, take glad tidings, be happy, be relaxed, you can do, you can keep going. But if you found that some of these beliefs did get corrupted and did get changed, then it's our job to purify our beliefs and bring it back to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that we love so much. قُلْ إِن كُنْتُمْ تُحِبُّونَ اللَّهَ فَاتَّبِعُونِ يُحْبِبْكُمُ اللَّهُ وَيَغْفِرْ لَكُمْ ذُنُوبَكُمْ Say, if you really love Allah, then follow me. Allah will love you and Allah will forgive you for your sins. My dear brothers, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about Iman in the Quran and the Sunnah. And we're going to look at what the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said and we're going to take it on board and we're going to look at Al-Firaq wal-Iftiraq fil-Kitabi wa-Sunnah the breaking up of Muslims into different groups as is mentioned in the Quran and the Sunnah I'm going to try my best not to give you any of my own opinions inshallah I'm not sure how long the broadcast will continue perhaps not uh, till the end but we will inshallah ta'ala try our very best the first ayah I want to talk to you about as it relates to Iman in the Quran is ayah number 177 from Surah Al-Baqarah. لَيْسَ وَأَقَامَ الصَّلَاةَ وَآتَ الزَّكَاةَ وَالْمُنْفُونَ بِعَهْدِهِمْ إِذَا عَاهَدُوا وَالصَّابِرِينَ فِي الْبَأْسَاءِ وَالضَّرَّاءِ وَحِينَ الْبَأْسِ أُولَئِكَ الَّذِينَ صَدَقُوا وَأُولَئِكَ هُمُ الْمُتَّقُونَ Righteousness is not for you to turn your face to the east or the west. But righteousness is for you to have Iman in Allah and the last day and the angels and the scripture and the prophets. And the ayah continues. So righteousness, Allah Azzawajal defined it as Iman in Allah, Iman in the angels, Iman in the scripture, Iman in the prophets, and Iman in the last day. Which one is missing? Every single thing we created it with a decree. So that's the one that is not mentioned in that particular ayah. Is that a problem for us that it's not mentioned in the ayah? It's not a problem for two reasons. First of all, the Quran is taken as a whole. We don't take one ayah and leave the rest of the Quran. The second reason is the Prophet ﷺ, when he explained the, the ayah to us and he taught us in the hadith of Jibreel, he brought the issue of Qadr, so there is no, there is no problem there. What does it mean to have Iman in those things? This is beyond the scope of our discussion today because today is just an introduction and talking about different groups. But what is really important, first of all, is to realize that there are really two aspects of Iman here. One is a generic and a general concept of Iman. And one is a specific and detailed concept of Iman. Sometimes we call it Al-Imanul Mujmal Wal-Iman Al-Mufassal. That's just the terminology, but it's okay to use. So what do we mean? When Allah said, believe in Allah, 
that's a generic thing, right? You believe in Allah, we believe Allah exists, we believe Allah is our Lord, we believe Allah has the right to be worshipped, we believe Allah has names and attributes. That's, you know, that gives us something. But it doesn't really give us the individual details of every specific issue. So in the beginning, we start with a generic and a general concept. And then as we go through the Quran and the Sunnah, we see that many things are told to us about Allah. Many things. For example, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, Maliki Yawmiddin. So now it's not just that I believe in Allah and that he exists and that he deserves to be worshipped, but now I believe that Allah is the Lord of all of the worlds and I believe that Allah is the most merciful and the one who bestows mercy and I believe that Allah is the owner and the sovereign of the day of recompense. Later on, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, tells me, Alim. He is the one who hears everything and knows everything. So as I am going through the Quran, I'm increasing in my knowledge of Iman in Allah. And as I'm going through the Sunnah, I'm increasing in my knowledge of Iman in Allah. Just yesterday we talked about the hadith in which the Prophet said, the hadith in Bukhari and Muslim, Make the pain go away, Lord of mankind. Cure, and you are the curer. There is no cure except your cure, a cure that leaves no sickness. Now I learned that one of Allah's names is Ashafi. And I learned that the cure only comes from Allah. So before I had a knowledge Allah exists and I, I should worship him. But now I know that he's the Lord of the worlds, the most gracious, the most merciful, the bestower of mercy, the master of the day of recompense. I also know that he is a Shafi, the one who cures and there is no cure except his. Every time we're going through, we're getting more and more detail. And as I said, the Quran and Sunnah is full of telling us about Allah, about his names and his attributes, telling us about who Allah is and connecting us to Allah in our worship through knowing our Lord in his lordship, his names and his attributes. And I don't think anyone can dispute that easily. It's, it's everywhere in the Quran. But my point is, a lot of people will say, okay, believe in Allah. Al-Iman Billah, okay, you believe in Allah. And that's it. Don't learn anything else. You might get misguided. That's not the right way. Yes, believe in Allah, that's your start. Alhamdulillah, with a new Muslim, we don't teach a new Muslim the 99 names of Allah before the Shahada, right? We didn't do that, right? We don't bring the new Muslims and say, okay, before Shahada, you have to learn all of Allah's names. Allah has more than 99 names, but 99 special ones. Do we teach them before the Shahada or after? After the Shahada, right? That means that his Iman to begin with was accepted with just believing that Allah exists, deserves worship, and nobody deserves worship except him. But then after that, as he learned more and more and more about Allah, so he developed the details which make up a person's iman. The same can be said for the angels. Exactly the same. In the beginning, we believe in angels. What do we know about angels? Angels are creation from the creation of Allah. Angels don't disobey Allah. Uh, angels have different jobs. We believe in angels like that, right? But then we get the details. For example, we learn about Jibra'il or Jibril and Mika'il or Mikan. And we learn about Israfil. And we learn what they do and what their jobs are. And we learn about Munkar and Nakir who come and question in the grave. And we learn about, for example, the angel of the mountains. And we learn about the 
falling of the rain. And as we learn these things, and we learn that Iblis was not an angel, right? We learn these things over time. So we're constantly learning more things about the angels as we come across the ayat in the Quran, the hadith in the sunnah, we're learning more and more. For example, we learn that the angels can take the form of a human being. Jibreel used to come in the form of Dihya al-Kalbi radiallahu anhu. When he used to visit the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he used to come in the form. In the hadith of Jibreel, he comes as a man nobody knows, right? Shadidu bayadu thiyab, his clothes are bright white and his hair is dark, dark black. He doesn't have any sign of travel on him and nobody knows him. This tells us something else about the angels that we didn't know, we didn't know before. So we start with a general concept and we add the details. So my dear brothers and sisters, don't be frightened to learn those details, study them. Learn more, because the more you learn about it, the closer you're going to get to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The same thing can be said about al-yawm al-akhir, the last day. The same thing. We of course believe that we'll be resurrected after we die. That's a basic belief of Muslims, right? There's going to be a qiyamah. But all the details, what happens to you when you die? The hadith of Al-Bara ibn Azib about the death of the believer, radiallahu anhumah, the death of the believer and the disbeliever and what happens to each one and what happens to the soul and the questioning in the grave and the punishment in the grave and then the resurrection on the day of judgment and what will happen to the people and they will stand with the sun a mile distant and there will be no shade except the shade of Allah's throne and then the people going to each of the prophets and the shafa'a of the prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the great intercession, al-shafa'atul ugma the great intercession where the Prophet Muhammad intercedes by Allah's permission to begin the judgment between the people. Al-Maqam al-Mahmud, the praiseworthy station. All of these things that we learn, the sirat, crossing the hellfire, wa minkum illa wariduha. All of this to do with the last day, so much detail. So much detail. But we start off believing we're going to be resurrected and there's a life after death. But we go into more and more and more as the Prophet ﷺ told us, and as we find in the book of Allah and we find from the Sahaba and those who followed them in good, the Imams of Islam And we can say the same for the scripture and the prophets, the same thing. Again, of course, everyone who accepts Islam knows the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ, knows that he's the last prophet, but all the details of him, when was he born, where did he go, what did he do, what was his life spent doing? And there's a benefit in his life. And I, I, I often tell people, concentrate on the seerah, there are a lot of lessons in seerah for you. One of the great lessons in the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, wallahi, one of the great lessons, is look at what, how the Prophet ﷺ taught the people and what did he teach them. So when did the salah become fard? When was it fard to pray five times a day? It wasn't in the time of the bi'tha, right? In the time the Prophet ﷺ, uh, became a prophet, Jibreel taught him wudu and taught him to pray the salah two rak'at. But it didn't spread to the rest of the Muslims. This happened in the time of al-Isra wal-Mi'raj, right? We know this from the seerah when the Prophet went to the heavens and Allah made five daily prayers, fard upon every Muslim. What were the Muslims doing before that? You might say zakah, but zakah came in Medina. You might say fasting, but fasting Ramadan came in Medina. They used to fast Ashura in the time of Jahiliyyah and then in the time of uh, after that it was common but they didn't use to fast Ramadan that came in Medina Hajj came at the end of the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam right towards the end 
So what were the people doing? The first, they were concentrating on the first pillar of Islam, the shahadatayn. Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammadan Rasulullah. Focusing on belief, iman in Allah. What does it mean to be a Muslim? And so on. And this action here is what we also do. That's why we say al-aqidatu awwala. Aqidah comes first. Why? Because the Prophet taught it first. Because Allah revealed, look at the surahs which are the surah which are makkiyah. And tell me, what do you find in them? You barely find ahkam. You barely find any rules and regulations. Very little. And just a few. About halal and haram and fiqh and stuff. Very little you find in there. Mostly what you find is iman, belief in Allah, aqidah, being different from the disbelievers. That's what you find in the surah which are makkiyah. Because that's what the people were busy with in Makkah. Building up their iman, building up their knowledge about Allah, connecting them to Allah, clearing them of the worship they used to do before, connecting them to worshipping Allah alone, getting them away from the other different beliefs and religions until then they were ready. And Allah gave them the salah and the zakah and the fasting and the hajj and all of the other rules and regulations of Islam. And the statement of Allah Azzawajal, والكتاب الذي نزل على رسوله والكتاب الذي أنزل من قبل ومن يكفر بالله وملائكته وكتبه ورسله واليوم الآخر فقد ضل ضلالا بعيدا All oh, you who believe, believe, يعني إيمان Have إيمان in Allah and his messenger And the scripture that was sent to his messenger And the scripture that was sent before Because the scripture was sent to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is the Quran, we know that and we know the scripture before, we know some of it, we don't know all of the details of it. So for example, we know the Torah and the Injil, we know about Suhufi Ibrahim wa Musa, but we don't maybe have all of the details of what was given. We know about the, the Zabur that was given to Dawood, Dawood Zabura. But we don't know all of the prophets, what scripture they had. We have a general belief. Plus the Torah and the Injil are not available for us in pure form. So we can't, kind of refer back because there is nothing in pure form. It's kind of corrupted and lost. There's a little bit here, a little bit there, and it's mixed up with people's opinions and so on. And that's one of the blessings of Islam, that Allah Azza wa inna nahnu nazzalna dhikr wa inna lahu lahafidhun. Allah protected our religion for us and protected our scripture for us. And part of our belief in the scripture is that the Quran is kalamullahi ghayru makhluq. It's the speech of Allah Azza wa Jal and it's not created. وَإِنْ أَحَدٌ مِّنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ اسْتَجَارَكَ فَأَجِرْهُ حَتَّى يَسْمَعَ كَلَامَ اللَّهِ ثُمَّ أَبَلِغْهُ مَأْمَنَهُ As Allah said in ayah, Allah said, and if one of the mushrikeen seeks your protection, give them protection until they hear the speech of Allah. And Allah says, وَكَلَّمَ اللَّهُ مُوسَى تَكْلِيمًا Allah spoke to Musa directly. And Allah says, وَكَلَّمُهُ رَبُّهُ Allah spoke, his Lord spoke to him. For this is something that Allah tells us about in the Quran. Again, we start off believing in Quran, we believe in the Quran, but later as we learn more about the Quran, and we learn more about what it means and what it entails, so we increase in our knowledge and our connection to the book of Allah And then Allah said, and whoever disbelieves in Allah and his angels and his scripture and his books and the last day has indeed gone far astray. The ayah Surah An-Nisa, ayah number 136. We mentioned the statement of Allah, 
Every single thing, we created it with a specific decree. Everything we created it with a specific decree. Everything we created it with a decree. And this decree of Allah Azza wa Jal, it has many, many great benefits for us. So if we take a little time to understand the details of Qadr, not too much because some of the scholars, they said, Bahrun la sahila lah. It's a, it's, a, it's a sea that doesn't have any shore. There's no beach. You're just going to drown if you don't stay on the, 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 the sunnah. And if you don't stick to what is in the Quran and the sunnah, you're going to drown yourself there. So basically, what do we know about the maratib al-qadr? First of all, Allah Azza wa Jal told us that Allah knows everything. Allah knows the past. Allah knows the present and Allah knows the future. We all agreed on that, right? There was nobody disagreed with that, that Allah knows every single thing in the past and every single thing that is happening now and every single thing in the future. Allamul ghuyub, the one who knows the unseen and the seen. Alimul ghaybi wa shahada. And Allah even knows the impossible. How do we know that Allah Azza wa Jal knows the impossible? Say, if there were gods besides Allah, all of them would have sought a means to the owner of the mighty throne. Is it possible for there to be a God besides Allah? It's impossible, right? But Allah still knows what would happen. His knowledge is infinite in every single thing. And you can't escape Allah's knowledge in anything. That is the first part of the belief in Qadr. The second part of the belief in Qadr is that Allah Azza wa Jal has written everything that will happen until Yawm Al-Qiyamah. Allah commanded the pen to write. And the pen said, what shall I write? He said, write everything that will happen until Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And this writing of the pen, it should not trouble us because Allah Azza wa Jal commanded the pen to write what is a part of Allah's knowledge, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if, for example, I ask you to write your name, it's not difficult for you to write your name. And it's not difficult for Allah, who can do anything, to command the pen to write what will happen. This is not hard for Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then sometimes people get, they start to get some doubts here. They start to get some confusion. And they say, but this means that my life and I... Don't think like that. The Prophet ﷺ told you to work hard. Work hard. Listen to the statement of Allah. If you strive for Allah, you work hard for Allah, Allah is going to guide you to his path. So don't say the pen wrote or the pen didn't write. You didn't see the pen and what it wrote. And you haven't read the Lawal Mahfuz. So don't let it trouble you. Instead, do what Allah said. Work hard for him and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will guide you. The third is that everything happens by Allah's will and nothing happens without the will of Allah. As Allah said, لِمَنْ شَاءَ مِنْكُمْ أَنْ يَسْتَقِيمْ وَمَا تَشَاءُونَ إِلَّا إِنْ يَشَاءَ اللَّهُ رَبُّ الْعَالَمِينَ For those of you who want to remain upright, and you will not be able to remain upright unless Allah wills it, Lord of the worlds. What do you see in the ayah? In the first ayah, it says, لِمَنْ شَاءَ مِنْكُمْ So it tells us that we have a will. Because Allah says, you have a mashia, liman sha'a minkum, you have a choice. But you can't exercise that choice, you can't carry it out. Illa an yasha'a Allah, unless Allah wills it. 
What does that tell you? Does that tell you we are all in prison? Our life is no point. You may as well just be resigned to the hellfire. No, it doesn't. What does it tell you? It tells you you need Allah. You people desperately need Allah. It means I want to make a good choice to give a good lecture today. That's my intention. I hope and I ask Allah to make a good lecture today and to benefit people and people enjoy it and people listen to it. But that's my will. Unless Allah carries that out for me and makes it happen, it will not be able to happen. So I need Allah and I have to make dua to Allah to make this a success and to make it correct. Otherwise, my will alone will not help. And Imam al-Shafi'i has some beautiful poetry. He said, مَا شِئْتَ كَانَ وَإِنْ لَمْ أَشَأْ وَمَا شِئْتُ إِنْ لَمْ تَشَأْ لَمْ يَكُنْ خَلَقْتَ الْعِبَادَ عَلَى مَا عَلِمْتَ وَفِي الْعِلْمِ يَجْرِي الْفَتَى وَالْمُسِينُ عَلَى ذَا مَنَنْتَ وَهَذَا خَذَلْتَ وَهَذَا أَعَنْتَ وَذَا لَمْ تُعِنْ فَمِنْهُمْ شَقِيٌّ وَمِنْهُمْ سَعِيدٌ وَمِنْهُمْ قَبِيحٌ وَمِنْهُمْ حَسَنٌ Beautiful poetry, he said. He said, oh Allah, if you will something to happen, it will happen even if I don't want it to happen. And when I want something to happen, if you don't want it to happen, it's not going to happen. You created your servants in your knowledge and you knew what would happen to them. And within your knowledge is the young and the old. And nobody escapes your knowledge, not the youngest person or the oldest person. This one you blessed and this one you forsook. This one you helped and this one you didn't. Among, meaning all of that is with Allah's wisdom. And Allah's wisdom and knowledge was what meant that some people were helped and some people were not. Among them are the blessed and among them are the wretched and among them are the ugly and among them are the beautiful. Amazing, look at the belief of the early Imams. I really, it's a lovely thing to do. Sometimes I try to give you some quotes later on, but look at what did the early Imams used to believe? What did they used to say? You listen to that poetry, you feel settled. You don't feel doubtful. You don't feel then, oh, Maybe I don't have a choice. Maybe I do. You, you're like, yeah, I understood now. I listened. I understood. And honestly, Qadr should settle your heart. Whoever believes in Allah's decree, Allah will settle his heart. Allah will guide his heart. So it should settle your heart. It should show how much you need Allah. It should show how much you want to work hard. Why are you working hard if it's already written for you? Because Allah promised to help the one who works hard. And if Allah doesn't help me, I'm in big trouble. I need Allah's help, so I'm going to work hard, put my trust in Allah, make dua, put my reliance upon Him and ask Him for His help. And then trust in Him and try my best with what Allah has given me and the choices I can make. But I know that my choices, they need Allah's help. I can't do it without Him. And then the fourth martaba of the maratib of Qadr, is to believe that everything in this universe from objects and actions is from the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. خَالِقُ كُلِّ شَيْءٍ وَاللَّهُ خَلَقَكُمْ وَمَا تَعْمَلُونَ Allah created you and the things that you make. Sometimes the tafsir of this ayah, people get a little bit wrong. They bring it that Allah created you and your actions. That's not quite the tafsir, but it's correct. The meaning is correct, but the tafsir is not quite correct. Because if you look at the ayah before in Surah, Saf, uh, in Surah Safat, if you look at the ayah before, 
Do you worship what you carve? Wallahu khalaqakum wa ma ta'malun. And Allah created you and the, and the things that you carve. But this is a proof because the carving was done by who? By the person. And yet all of it is from the creation of Allah. Someone here comes with a confusion. Say, I don't get it. Because am I doing it or is Allah doing it? No, no, you're doing it. It's your action. But Allah Azza wa Jal created the ability within you. And Allah creates two ways. Let me give you an example. Allah created Adam and Allah created Muhammad Tim. We all agreed. Allah created Adam and Allah created Muhammad Tim. We all agreed. How did Allah create Adam from what he told us in the Quran? He created him from dust and then he said, be and it is. Was there any mom? No. Was there any dad? No. Was there any monkey? No, there wasn't. He created Adam from Turab, from the dirt. And interestingly, that's why the Prophet told us we have the different colors in our skins. That because Allah created the dirt from Adam, the dust of all of the earth, the white sand and the, the black volcanic rock and the mud of all the different colors and the red color and everything. And so from this, Adam's children came with different colors. كُلُّكُم مِّنْ آدَمْ وَآدَمْ مِّنْ تُرَاب All of you came from Adam and Adam came from Turab. He came from the dirt, the dust. Muhammad Tim came from his mom and dad. This issue of coming from your mom and dad is also from the creation of Allah Azza wa Jal. But Allah Azza wa Jal created you indirectly. And there was a biological process, there was a, a, a birth, there was a growing in the womb, there was a birth. But all of that is from Allah's creation. So once you took that example, it's easy to understand everything else. It's really simple, like you don't feel confused because I understood that sometimes Allah creates directly like Adam. And sometimes Allah creates by giving his creation the ability to do something. So Allah has given you the ability to act and Allah will judge you according to it. And you and your actions are all within the creation of Allah There is one more issue of Qadr that I think it's good to deal with or two. One is that people often confuse what Allah wills and what Allah loves. They get a bit mixed up. So the word wills is something that happens, right? When Allah wills it, it, it happens, like it happens. But sometimes Allah loves and sometimes Allah doesn't love it. Sometimes Allah loves it and sometimes he doesn't. For example, Allah says, Allah does not love for his servants to disbelieve. Agreed? Allah doesn't love. Allah doesn't love every boastful, arrogant person. So if Allah doesn't love that, but it happened, so if it happened, it has to have been from the Mashiach of Allah, Allah's will. That means that Allah sometimes wills what he loves and sometimes wills what he doesn't love. But why? For a wisdom that is with him. An infinite wisdom that is with him. He has a wisdom in every single thing. So if he decrees something to happen that he doesn't love, there is a wisdom and a reason for that. Whether we know it or not. For example, when Iblis misguided Adam, right? Is that something Allah loved? Allah didn't love it. 
We know Allah doesn't love Iblis and we know Allah doesn't love the actions of Iblis. Was there a benefit in that in the long term for Adam and for his offspring? Of course, there was a huge benefit. Some of the scholars wrote pages on the benefits of what happened to Adam. From the benefits is that Allah returned him to a Jannah that is greater than the Jannah that he was taken out from. And from it is that Adam had children on the earth and they worshipped Allah And we know the story of the angels. This ayah about the angels and the angels said, are you going to put on the earth people who are going to spill blood and people who are going to cause corruption on the earth? But Allah Azza wa Jal knows what we don't know. I know what you don't know. And so there were many, many benefits in what happened to Adam alayhi salam, but at the time it happened to Adam, do you think Adam appreciated all of those benefits at the moment he was cast out from Jannah? No, because we as human beings, our knowledge is limited. But Adam turned back to Allah in repentance. Allah taught Adam the words of Tawbah. And Allah accepted his repentance. And Allah made him an imam, a leader for his people and his offspring. And until this day, we mention him and we say alayhi salam. And we remember the story and we take lessons from it. And there were many lessons in that. But the initial action that happened, Allah didn't love it. So Allah always has a wisdom in what he does, whether he loves it or not. The last issue we're going to deal with is guidance and misguidance. Because again, a lot of people could be confused and they might say, well, I feel unsure about this issue of guidance and misguidance. Allah Azza wa Jal says in Surah Al-Hujurat, وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ حَبَّبَ إِلَيْكُمُ الْإِيمَانِ وَزَيَّنَهُ فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ وَكَرَّهَ إِلَيْكُمُ الْكُفْرَ وَالْفُسُوقَ وَالْعِسْيَانِ أُولَٰئِكَ هُمُ الرَّاشِدُونَ فَضْلًا مِّنَ اللَّهِ وَنِعْمَةِ وَاللَّهُ عَلِيمٌ حَكِيمٌ What did we take from this? We took from it that Allah Azza wa Jal made Iman beloved to you. He made Iman beautiful in your heart and he made you love your Iman and he made you hate to disobey him or defy him or disbelieve in him. These are the rightly guided as a grace from Allah and a mercy. Now, if I ask you as a grace and a blessing, if I ask you the word grace, does it mean that you deserve it? Everyone agrees the word grace is something you get extra. For example, in fiqh, maybe you've studied the topic of fadlul wudu, fadlul ma fil wudu. The extra water that is left over from someone's wudu, are you allowed to use it again or you're not allowed to use it again? The word fadl is something extra on top of the basic. Allah describes your iman as a fadl, as a grace, and a ni'mah. And a ni'mah is not a wage. He didn't say it's an ajr. He didn't say it's a ratib, it's your wage or your salary. He said it's a ni'mah, it's a blessing. So the first thing we realize is that if Allah guided us, He guided us as a blessing and a grace, which makes us thankful to Him. Wallahu alimun hakim, and Allah knows and is the most wise about who deserves that guidance and who doesn't. Now, someone might say, but I, I still I struggle with this misguidance thing, and I'm, you know, I know the Prophet said, Whoever Allah guides, there is none that can misguide him. And whoever Allah misguides, nobody can guide him. But I'm a little confused. 
I'm a little upset and confused about misguidance. Is it fair? Your Lord never oppressed anybody. Allah is the most just. He never oppresses anyone. And I'm going to give you an evidence. Allah says, if you could only see when they, these disbelievers are held over the fire and they say, our Lord, please return us. We will believe in your ayat and we will be among the believers. And Allah says, rather they were exposed for what they hid before. And if we return them back, they will do the same thing again. And they are the liars. Subhanallah. So Allah told us that people who ask to go out from the fire, they are not sincere. I'm not talking about the Muslims who made mistakes. I'm talking about the people who are in their abad al-abad forever and ever. Those people, subhanallah, those people, they are not sincere when they ask to go out. They are just trying to get the punishment off them and they just want to go and do the same disbelief they did before. Is that not then just for them to be where they are? It is. So we understood that Allah is always just, that Allah Azzawajal is never ever unfair, that we must work hard, put our trust in Allah and our reliance in Him. And that's just a basic discussion of the main points relating to Al-Qadr as it came in the Qur'an. Another thing that the Qur'an tells us about is the concept of Iman. What do I mean by the concept of Iman? I mean the idea of Iman, what it is, what's the reality of Iman, Haqiqatul Iman. Allah says, وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَاكُمْ أُمَّةً وَسَطًا لِتَكُونُوا شُهَدَاءَ عَلَى النَّاسِ وَيَكُونَ الرَّسُولُ عَلَيْكُمْ شَهِيدًا وَمَا جَعَلْنَا الْقِبْلَةَ الَّتِي كُنْتَ عَلَيْهَا إِلَّا لِنَعْلَمَ مَنْ يَتَّبِعُ الرَّسُولَ مِمَّنْ يَنْقَلِبُ عَلَىٰ أَقِبَيْهِ وَإِنْ كَانَتْ لَكَبِيرَةً إِلَّا عَلَىٰ الَّذِينَ هَدَى اللَّهِ وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُضِيعَ إِيمَانَكُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ بِالنَّاسِ لَرَأُوفٌ رَحِيمٌ The story of the changing the Qibla, we all know from the seerah. When the Qibla changed, Allah told us that he changed the Qibla to know who will follow the Prophet ﷺ and who will turn on his heels. And that it was hard upon the people except for those that Allah guided. And then Allah said, وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيُضِيعَ إِيمَانَكُمْ Allah didn't cause your iman to be lost. What is your iman here? Your salah. That's this, if you look in the books of tafsir, look in any of the books of tafsir, the word iman here is as-salah. Therefore, your salah is a part of your iman. And the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, وَإِذَا تُلِيَتْ عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتُهُ زَادَتْهُمْ إِيمَانًا And when the ayat of Allah are recited, they increase in iman. And the statement of Allah, وَيَزِيدُ اللَّهُ الَّذِينَ اهْتَدُوا هُدًا Allah gives an increase in guidance to those that are guided. And Allah said, وَيَزْدَادُ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا إِيمَانًا And the people of iman got more iman. And Allah said, هُوَ الَّذِي أَنزَلَ السَّكِينَةَ فِي قُلُوبِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ لِيَزْدَادُوا إِيمَانًا مَعَ إِيمَانِهِمْ He is the one who sent down tranquility in the hearts of the believers to increase in iman along with their iman. And Allah Azzawajal said, وَإِذَا مَا أُنزِلَتْ سُورَةٌ فَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ يَقُولُ أَيُّكُمْ زَادَتْهُ هَذِهِ إِيمَانًا فَأَمَّا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا فَزَادَتْهُمْ إِيمَانًا وَهُمْ يَسْتَبِشِرُونَ وَأَمَّا الَّذِينَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ مَرَضٌ فَزَادَتْهُمْ رِجِسًا إِلَى رِجِسِهِمْ وَمَاتُوا وَهُمْ كَافِرُونَ 
Allah said, if we sent down a surah, among them are those who said, did any of you get increase in Iman? They were joking, making fun. Did any of you get increase in Iman yet? The munafiqeen. As for those who believed, they got their increase in Iman and they took glad tidings. And as for those whose hearts were a disease, it increased them in filth, in addition to their filth. And they died in a state of disbelief. Al-Shafi'i, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, Al-Imanu qawlun wa amal yazidu bil-ta'ah wa yanghusu bil-ma'asiyah. He said, Iman is statements and actions. It increases with obedience and it decreases when you sin. And Al-Bukhari, rahimahullah ta'ala, said, Laqeetu akthara min alfi rajul min al-ulamai bil-amsar. فَمَا رَأَيْتُ أَحَدًا مِّنْهُمْ يَخْتَلِفُ فِي أَنَّ الْإِيمَانَ قَوْلٌ وَعَمَلٌ يَزِيدُ وَيَنْقُصٌ Al-Bukhari said, I met a thousand scholars from the men of the towns all over the world. Every one of them said, and none of them disagreed, that your iman is statement and action. It increases and decreases. Yes, this is a difference between some people. I know often we are taught that our iman is the same and it doesn't go up and down. But I think these evidences that we put forward showed us that the correct view in this matter is that your iman goes up when you obey Allah and down when you disobey Allah and that it comprises beliefs, statements, actions of the heart, actions of the tongue and actions of the limbs. And it's enough for us that Imam al-Bukhari, rahimahullah ta'ala, a thousand of the ulama that Bukhari met, he said, I never saw anyone except that they say, Iman is statement and action. It goes up and it goes down. And so inshallah ta'ala, we correct that aspect if we had a misunderstanding and we thought that, and I mean, who will say the Iman of the Prophet and my Iman is the same? Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, abadan la. It cannot be. It cannot be that my Iman and the Iman of the Prophet sallallahu is the same. Some people made this mistake of the Hawi narrates it from Abi Hanifa rahimahullah ta'ala. And why, what do we say about that? We say rahimahumullah ta'ala. Because wallahi, they were ulama who sought the truth. And if an alim seeks the truth and makes a mistake, we hope that Allah Azza wa Jal will give him a reward for his efforts, even if he missed out on the double reward of getting it right. And all of us get things right and wrong. So if we see an alim who loves the sunnah and calls to the sunnah and promotes the sunnah and invites to the sunnah and teaches the sunnah and they make a mistake in something, we don't hold that mistake against them. We say that that's not the correct answer because of one, two, three, these ayat and this hadith and these statements. But we ask Allah to have mercy upon the people who make a mistake in a particular aspect. And that is something like Malik said, Everyone has things accepted and rejected except for the person in this grave. Where was Malik when he said that? He was in the, the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ and he pointed to the grave of the Prophet ﷺ. He said, everyone gets things right and wrong. Everyone gets things accepted or rejected except this man here. This man in this grave, he's the only one that didn't get things wrong. Our messenger Muhammad ﷺ. My dear brothers, we only have around about half an hour for the live stream. So forgive me for not giving you a break. But I'm trying to, uh, inshallah, take the most out of the TV, the live stream, inshallah. And then we're going to take a nice break for salah. And if we have a topic afterwards, we will come back, inshallah ta'ala. We want to talk about al-firaq wal-iftiraq fil-Qur'ani wa sunnah 
And this, my dear brothers, is not my attempt to have a go at anybody. Please understand me clearly because I'm sure somebody wants to take a little clip and send it out to everybody. This is not my attempt to, to have a go at someone. I want to simply prove that the existence of al-firaq wal-iftiraq fil-Islam, that in Islam, the Prophet told us that the Muslims will divide up into different beliefs. This is what I want to prove. Allah Azza wa Jal said, فَتَقَطَّعُوا أَمْرَهُمْ بَيْنَهُمْ زُبُرًا كُلُّ حِزْبٍ بِمَا لَدَيْهِمْ فَرِحُونَ The people divided their religion among them into sects. Each faction was rejoicing in what they had. Now someone may say, Muhammad Tim, okay, this is true because this is from the people before, right? It wasn't revealed about the Muslims. It was revealed about the nations before. So how can you apply this to the Muslims? You will certainly follow the way of the people before you. So if we know the Jews and Christians broke up into sects, then for sure we can expect the same thing to happen among the Muslims, except the one that Allah has mercy upon. And Allah said, Those people who divided their religion and became sects, each faction rejoiced with what they have. And that's the nature of sectarianism, right? The nature of sectarianism is everyone thinks they're right. You can say that applies to you. Of, of course, yani, that's the nature of al-firaq wal-iftiraq, is everybody believes they are right. Tayyib, who is right? Al-kitab wa-sunnah wa ma kana alayhi salaful ummah. That's who is right. The Quran and the sunnah and what the early generations are upon. I'm not the one who is right. Nor is my teacher the one who is right. Nor is Ibn Taymiyyah the one who is right. Nor is any Imam the one who is right. Rahimallahu al-jami'ah. Rather, who is right is the Quran and the Sunnah and what the earliest Muslims were upon. And wherever we find a Shaykh who agrees with that, we agree with him. And wherever anyone differs from that, we differ with them. Because the nature of al-firaq wal-iftiraq is what? Kullu hizmin bima farihun. Everyone thinks that they are the one who is right. And Allah told the Prophet Muhammad to have nothing to do with any of them. Surah Al-An'am, Ayah number 159. Indeed, those people who broke up their religion and they formed sects, they, you have nothing to do with them, O Muhammad. This is the ayah that is probably the closest to applying to the Muslims because, the, because Allah is talking to the Prophet If you see anyone breaking up their religion into different groups, you have nothing to do with them, O Muhammad. Their affair is with Allah and Allah will tell them about what they used to do. My dear brothers, take the hadith of Al-Irbad ibn Sariyah. The hadith narrated by Abi Dawood and a Tirmidhi, and this is the wording of Abi Dawood. He said, regarding Al-Irbad ibn Sariya, that he said, The Prophet prayed with us on that day. Then he turned to us after the prayer. He said he gave us such a speech 
that our eyes shed tears and our hearts shook. So we understood Al Irbad ibn Sariya. He said, I prayed behind the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam one day. He turned to us and he gave us such a speech that our, our eyes were pouring with tears and our heart was shaking. فَقَالَ قَائِلٌ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ كَأَنَّ هَذِهِ مَوْعِظَةُ مُوَدِّعٍ فَمَاذَ تَعْحَدُ إِلَيْنَا a, a person said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, it seems like this is your farewell speech. What do you tell us that we must stick to? SubhanAllah, they thought that this was the last speech or one of the last speeches he was going to give. It feels like you're saying goodbye. مَوْعِذَةُ مُوَدِّعَ مُوَدِّعَ You're saying goodbye. It feels like you're saying goodbye to us. What do you tell us to do? The Prophet ﷺ, he said, أُوْسِيكُمْ بِتَقْوَى اللَّهِ I command you to have the taqwa of Allah, to do your best to obey Him and keep away from what, what is disobedience to Him. وَالسَّمْعِ وَالطَّاعَ وَإِنْ عَبْدًا And you listen and obey your Imam, and the ruler, even if he is an Abyssinian slave. Is this part of Aqidah now? It is. Why? Because the Prophet ﷺ said, as a final advice, that if you have a ruler over you, and over you as a, a ruler, a commander, the leader of the Muslims, you must listen and obey them in what is obedience to Allah, even if they are an Abyssinian slave. Why did he give the example of an Abyssinian slave? The slave is not a ruler over anyone, right? Generally speaking, the slave is not a ruler over, over anyone because you cannot, the slave is, is influenced by the owner. So you cannot, like you can't, it's like, it's not, it's corrupt. It's not fair to have the slave as the ruler. He said the most rare example in the minds of the people and the example people are like, you know, this would not happen. Even if it is an Abyssinian slave, you are to hear and to obey. We know the Prophet said, Al-Khilafah to Quraysh that the ruling of the Muslims in across the whole Muslims, not individual countries, but over the whole Muslim is for Quraysh. Even if it's not Quraysh, even if it's not a free person, still you listen to them and you obey them. And then he said, He said, whoever of you lives after me, you're going to see a lot of differences. Is that not true, Ikhwani? Is that not what we see today in the world today? Ikhtilaf and kathira. If this is not ikhtilaf and kathira, fala adri mal ikhtilaf. I don't know what ikhtilaf is if this is not ikhtilaf. We see ikhtilaf in aqidah, we see ikhtilaf in fiqh, we see ikhtilaf in suluk, we see ikhtilaf in every single bab min abwab al-Islam. All of the topics of Islam, we see ikhtilaf. You're going to see ikhtilaf kathiran, lots of ikhtilaf. فَعَلَيْكُمْ بِسُنَّتِي Stick to my sunnah. وَسُنَّةِ الْخُلَفَاءِ الْمَهْدِيِّينَ الرَّاشِدِينَ And the sunnah of the khulafa rashidin Abi Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali رضي الله عنهم تَمَسَّكُوا بِهَا وَعَضُّوا عَلَيْهَا بِالنَّوَاجِذِ Hold onto it and bite onto it with your molar teeth. Now look at what he's saying. You're going to see differences, my brothers. You live after the Prophet you are going to see ikhtilaf in aqeedah, ikhtilaf in religion, ikhtilaf in suluk, manners, ikhtilaf in fiqh, ikhtilaf in everything. What's the cure? O Messenger of Allah, what is the cure for this? فَعَلَيْكُمْ بِسُنَّتِي Stick to my sunnah. وَسُنَّةِ الْخُلَفَاءَ الرَّاشِدِينَ 
Al-Mahdiyin min ba'di. Stick to the sunnah of the Khulafa al-Rashidin. Who are they? Are they not the Sahaba? Is this not what I said to you earlier? The Quran and the Sunnah and what the Sahaba were upon, the Khulafa al-Rashidin particularly, stick to it, hold onto it. Tamassaku biha. Bite onto it with your molar teeth. What does it mean, bite onto it with your molar teeth? Hold onto it like this, from the back of your mouth. Don't let go of the sunnah. Don't let go of the sunnah. And keep away from what he called What does the word muhtatha or what does it mean, muhtatha? Something which has been newly introduced. Ahdatha yuhtithu. It means to introduce something new. Whether it's a new belief or a new practice or a new behavior. If it's in the religion. As for the dunya, Allah kept the dunya open. Yani. As long as Allah didn't make it clearly haram, yani the, the dunya is the dunya. But in the religion, keep away from the newly invented things. They could be beliefs. Newly invented beliefs. Was tashayyu' present in the time of the Prophet This belief in, uh, that in the Imams and Ali and you know this worship of Ali, was this present in the time of the Prophet Of course not. It was newly introduced into the religion after that. Or it could be practices, actions that people did, like different ways of praying or, and I'm not talking about the differences that, that come from the, the issues of fiqh. Yani. This is the scholars are trying to pray like the Prophet I'm talking about things that are just nothing. The Prophet never did it, The Sahaba never did it, radiallahu anhum. A completely new practice that nobody did before. Or it could be from behaviors. It could be from behaviors. For example, this locking yourself in the monastery and keeping yourself away from the dunya and refusing to get married and wearing woolen clothes. What did Allah say? It was a monasticism that they invented it. They innovated it. They brought it newly into the religion. We never told them to do it. When they locked themselves in the monastery and they wore the woolen clothes and they refused to get married and all of that stuff, Allah never told them to do it. They invented it. And he said, For everything which is newly introduced in this religion is bid'ah, in innovation, and every innovation is misguidance. This is not Muhammad Tim. This is the Prophet I'm just reading you from Sunan Abi Dawood. I copy-paste from Sunan Abi Dawood. It's narrated by a Tirmidhi. And these specific words are narrated in other collections of hadith. For the Prophet is telling you, when you live after me, you're going to see people differing. Stick to my sunnah. Ikhwani, don't misunderstand me. Some people are going to say, Muhammad Tim is telling you to leave your madhab and leave your shuyukh and leave your ulama. La wallahi. I personally believe that the madhahib fiqhiyah have a critical role to play in Islam. And it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to learn the abwab of fiqh with order and precision without having a curriculum and great scholars to follow. This is nothing to do with that. This is to do with newly invented beliefs and practices that never came from the Prophet ﷺ, never came from his companions, never came from the early generation of Muslims. As for you learning fiqh from a particular curriculum, 
This is how everybody learns fiqh. Tell me who learned fiqh without that. Maybe a shawkani, but a shawkani is shawkani, rahimahullah ta'ala. We let him off for it. We won't hold it against him, rahimahullah ta'ala. Not, it's not normal yani, that you learn fiqh without a teacher or a curriculum and you're just going to the Quran and Sunnah. But what is your goal in learning fiqh? Is it not to, to learn fiqh of the Quran and the Sunnah? Or is your goal to learn the fiqh of Qadi Fulan and Shaykh Fulan? It's not. That's what the Imams warned us against. They didn't want us to do that. They wanted us to reach the Quran and the Sunnah. But you need a little help. You're starting off, you're a beginner, it's your first day. At least give me Shaykh, tell me what do I need to learn in day one, day two, day three. But my goal is the Quran and the Sunnah. Some people are following and their goal is not the Quran and the Sunnah. And that's a problem. فَعَلَيْكُمْ بِسُنَّتِي Stick to my Sunnah and the Sunnah of the rightly guided Khulafa. This is important. When you find the Sunnah of the Prophet and we might differ. Two groups of the Muslims with different beliefs, both of them say, I follow the Quran and the Sunnah. Tayyip, what shall we do from the hadith of Al-Irbat? How shall we solve the problem? Two groups come along. They say, I follow Quran and Sunnah. The other group comes and says, I follow Quran and Sunnah. But one of them is totally different to the other. What shall we do? Look at the Sunnah of the Khulafa al-Rashidin. Look at the Sahaba and what they did. And from that, we can understand which one really is following the Sunnah and which one isn't. Look at the authenticity of the reports. Look at the chains of narration. My dear brothers, one of the signs of Ahl sunnah is that our aqeedah is musnada and wallahi there is no firqa and there is no ta'ifa ala wajh al-ard on the face of this earth that has aqeedah musnada except for Ahl sunnah What do I mean by aqeedah musnada? Aqeedah that has chains of narration to the Prophet Not aqeedah that my shaykh had a dream one day and now we have aqeedah from this. La wallah. Aqeedah musnada. Aqeedah haddathana wa akhbarana wa haddathana wa qala wa qala wa qala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That's why the early books of Aqeedah that were written by those great Imams, they were generally musnada, they had isnad, chain of narration. It was none of this qala fulan and qala fulan. They brought the chains of narration all the way. We prove it to you. This is what the early generations believed. So look at the Khulafa al-Rashidin. Look at the authenticity of the, of the chain. Look at where it came from. Look at the influence of the other religions. Stick to the sunnah and the sunnah of the Khulafa al-Rashidin. Let's see, how much time do I have? I have 15 minutes, I'm, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. Insha'Allah. From these ahadith is the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It's hadith on Sahih. Uh, and the hadith narrated in a number of different, uh, it's, number, it's narrated in a number of different places. It's narrated by Abu Dawood and Al-Tirmidhi and Ibn Majah and Al-Hakim. And Al-Hakim said, Sahihun ala shalti Muslim. He said, Sahihun ala shalti Muslim. It's authentic upon the condition of an Imam Muslim. In this hadith, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, Iftaraqatil Yahud ala ihda wa sab'ina firqa. Waftaraqatil Nasara ala thnatayni wa sab'ina firqa. Wasataftariqu hadihi al-umma ala thalathin wa sab'ina firqa. Kulluha finnari illa wahida. He said, the Jews broke up into 71 different groups. And the Christians broke up into 72 different groups. And my nation will break up into 73 different groups. All of them are in the hellfire, except one. So the Sahaba, do you think they all went home at that point? They didn't, because we know the Sahaba. 
The Sahaba, radiallahu anhum, they ask the best questions anybody can ask. They're very intelligent. That's why, wallah, one of the reasons Allah chose the Sahaba is because of the intelligence questions, of the questions. The Sahaba, they said, Man hiya ya Rasulullah? Who is it? Tell us. Because we don't want to be accidentally into any group or anything that is in the 72 different sects. We want to be upon the truth. The Prophet ﷺ, he said, Man kana ala mithli ma ana alayhi wa ashabi. What me and my companions are upon. What is similar to what me and my companions are upon. What does this match with? It matches with the hadith of Al-Irbad ibn Usariyah. Alaykum bi sunnati wa sunnati al-Khulafa al-Rashidin. So it matches together. It's the same thing. What me and my companions are upon. So whenever we differ, it doesn't matter about groups. I'm not here to name groups. I'm not here to name small groups or local groups or anything like that. Anytime I differ with anyone and that person says, Muhammad Tim, you have an aqeedah that's dangerous. We heard it, right? Your aqeedah is going to destroy the people and corrupt the people. Tayyib ya I'm going to listen to what you have to say. But I'm, it's not me to judge or you to judge. What is to judge is man kana ala mithli ma ana alayhi ashabi. What whoever is upon the same as me and my companions are upon today. So now we have to compare my belief and your belief. We have to go back with the chains. Aqeedah musnada with chains. Go all the way back. Where does it, where does it end up? Where does it end up? Where does this aqeedah end up? And if we find that this aqeedah, it ends up with the Prophet ﷺ, with the companions, with the great imams of Islam, then alhamdulillah, we know that we are on the right track and we can discuss further from there. But if we find this aqeedah doesn't go back to them and the sanad and the chain doesn't go there, then we know that this is not, it's not where we want to be. And one of the signs of Ahl sunnah and I wanted to kind of conclude with this, I don't want to take too much longer, but I wanted to really conclude with this because it's important. I wanted to talk about something, and that is that, that one of the signs of the aqidah of Ahl sunnah is that it is clear and it's not hidden. It's clear and it's not hidden. Why? Because where does it come from? From the Prophet ﷺ. Did the Prophet ﷺ used to hide his knowledge? He didn't. Allah Azza wa Jal commanded, You have to convey what we told you. Did the Sahaba used to conceal their knowledge? They, everything they passed it on in the books of Hadith. They passed it on and they gave it on to everybody so they got their knowledge from that. They got their knowledge from the, from the Sahaba. This aqidah is so clear. One of the signs of the people who went wrong is that they conceal their aqidah from the people. Very simple statement. I'm not claiming any group. I'm not attacking anybody. I'm just telling you. They conceal their aqidah from the people. I once saw a sheikh. He's not from South Africa. So I'm going to be honest with you so I, we don't get controversial now. He's not from South Africa. He's a sheikh from America. What happened is he invited his sheikh to give a lecture about the Quran. I have the audio recording. And his sheikh said... The Qur'an is created. Astaghfirullah. He said the Qur'an is created and uncreated. Yani all the letters, the words, everything in the Qur'an is created. The sheikh from America, his, he became embarrassed. Because what happened now? Somebody let the cat out of the bag. Somebody told the people, he said, people, listen, 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 stop, stop, sheikh, stop, stop. I've got the audio. He says, 
listen everyone, this is the correct aqidah, but we don't tell it to people. Because if you tell it to people, you might get punched. And rightly so. Rightly so. You might get punched. So he's telling openly. He's saying, I don't tell people what I believe because if I told them what I believe, somebody might punch me. Somebody might punch me. And then he goes on and he actually brings poetry. He said like, This whole thing about... And he brings this long poetry and he brings it to say, yeah, it's true what the Sheikh said, but we don't teach it to people because if you teach people our aqidah, they might not like you anymore. The aqidah of Ahl sunnah is not like this. The Prophet wasn't like this. The Sahaba were not like this. The Imams of Islam were not like this. The awliya of this religion were not like this. They didn't used to conceal their beliefs and hide it from people. But wallahi, all of these firaq, other than Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, all of them, wallahi, would be less if now without no exception. Every single one of them, every single one of them hides beliefs under the table. We're not going to tell you about it. And then when people come to tell about it, they get upset. So don't teach the people this, people might get upset about us. Because why? Because you put your aqidah under the table. You didn't teach people what you believe. Khwani, let's, if we're going to have a discussion about who's right and who's wrong, at least bring what you really believe on the table. Don't lie to the people. Why did they have such a go at me? They had such a go at me because I never hid what I believe. From the first day, my YouTube channel, my things, I told people from the, if it's right, it's wrong. Forgive me if it's wrong. May Allah forgive me. And if anything is wrong, it's not from Allah. It's not from the Rasul. It's my mistake. But I never hid it. I said openly, this is what I believe. And a lot of people, they get scared by that from a lot of different places and different groups because they don't want people to know what this belief is. And I'm going to give you a third characteristic of Ahl Sunnah, and that is that their aqidah is one. Aqidatuhum wahida. They have one aqidah, not three aqidahs. For example, there came a group of the Jahmiyyah, all of them following Jahm ibn Safwan, a deviant individual. Jahm, he said, look, the only thing you can say about Allah is he exists. You can't say anything else. Just you can say he exists. Everything else you can't say it. Then along came someone said, Jahm, you're wrong. Actually, you're right in your principle, but this, you're wrong about it. It's not, it's not uh, one, it's three. You can say three things about Allah. You can say Allah has power and Allah has knowledge and whatever else. Then along came another group, they said, no, 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 no. Actually, you're right in your principles, but actually it's not three, it's actually seven things you can say about Allah. Then along came another group, said, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. It's not seven, it's eight. Their aqidah is not one. Their aqidah, even among themselves, doesn't stay the same. The aqidah of the early people, the middle people, the later people, every generation comes by, the aqidah changes. This is not the sign of Ahl Sunnah because our aqidah comes from the Rasul Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Thabita, Sahiha, from the narrations, from the hadith. So it doesn't change. And that's why you read a book of a scholar in India writing about aqidah, you read the exact same thing as someone who wrote a thousand years ago. You read the exact same thing as someone who wrote last week. Someone from here, someone from America, someone from you, and they all believe the same thing. Aqidatuhum wahida. They have one belief. Because their aqidah came from a reliable source. As for the ones whose aqidah came from the aql and the yani, philosophy and all that, 
It doesn't stay one because you and my intellect is different. You're much cleverer than me. I'm nowhere near as clever as you. You're much, much cleverer than me. So for sure, you're going to see things I don't see and I'm going to see other things and we're going to differ because the source of our aqidah is what? If it's al-aql, we're all going to differ. Al-aql, yatafawat, right? We have all different opinions about things and I think it's good, you think it's bad. How are we going to come to a conclusion in that? And that's why you see that their aqidah doesn't stay the same, not even in one place. They all fight against each other. Whereas the aqidah of Ahl sunnah and I'm not claiming a group or a methodology or a name. I'm just saying the aqidah of the Prophet and his companions. It doesn't change. It doesn't get updated and modernized. It's just the same every time. And that's why it doesn't matter to me if I read Usul al-Sunnah by Imam Ahmed. Or I read Kitab al-Tawheed by Ibn Khuzayma. Or I read something from the later scholars or the earlier scholars. Or I read Aqidah Tahawiyah by Imam Tahawi rahimahullah ta'ala. Because all of it is telling me the same thing. Yes, there might be one or two things we mentioned. The issue of the concept of Iman, there might be one or two things because nobody is perfect. But in general, the Aqidah is the same. We don't differ on the Aqidah. And this is one thing I wanted to tell you finally and in conclusion about the four Imams, Rahimahumullah Ta'ala, while they differed a lot in issues of fiqh. Someone asked me the other day, can a Hanafi marry Shafi'i? It's like a war, right? <laughs> they can, they can. <laughs> They're both Muslim. They can. But they were talking about marriage problems between the different madahib. But these imams didn't differ in their aqidah at all. Virtually one, two points. Yani they virtually didn't differ in anything. And we have quotes, we can, I mean, maybe after the break, of imam after imam saying the same thing, all of them. So it shows us that the aqidah of the Prophet is solid, doesn't change. And yet the aqidah, which is misguided, it changes regularly and even among themselves. They don't agree because it doesn't go back to Ruknin Wasiq, back to a solid foundation that is based upon. My dear brothers and sisters, it is time for a break. For the people who are watching on Hilal TV, first of all, Jazakumullahu Khairan. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless you with the best of this world and the next. You've been immensely patient to sit and watch. The brothers have been broadcasting for us. We really appreciate it. Inshallah ta'ala, what is to come is just a, a summary of some of the things we said and just a few extra points. But alhamdulillah, yani generally we covered 95% of the topic. We covered it for you, inshallah. The brothers now, they have to pack up their equipment and we also have to take a nice uh, bit of a break, inshallah ta'ala. Um, I'm going to suggest a break of at least, I think Asr is going to, the later Asr time is going to come at 4.20 approximately. That's the later time. Uh, and this, this, the earlier Asr time is maybe earlier than that. But I think uh, if we go until like half four, if we resume, we're only going to resume for maybe 45 minutes. That's it. So we'll take a break until then. I'm going to put the live stream on pause. I think I have some students who are waiting uh, for me online as well to answer some questions. So inshallah ta'ala, we take a break until around about half past four. We'll pray our Asr prayer. Stretch your legs. You've been sitting for a very, very long time. Get yourself some refreshments inshallah. And we will start again after Salat al-Asr, bi-ibni Allahi ta'ala. Hada wallahu a'lam wa salatu wa salam ala nabiyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. I had three really good questions. I had more than three, but I had three questions that I wanted to try to uh, mention. The first question that I had is that some of the brothers were mentioning, why is it in books of Aqidah that we sometimes see fiqh issues being mentioned. For example, we find in a book of Aqidah 
wiping over leather socks makes you from Ahl Sunnah. But surely wiping over leather socks is a purely fiqh issue, right? It's, it's not a matter of aqidah at all. It's a matter of socks. It's not a matter of aqidah. They said because what, not doing so became a sign of a particular group. In other words, there was a particular group who used to wipe over bare feet and there was a particular group who did, you know, certain things. And because of that group, it was included in there. So sometimes the scholars will include in books of Aqidah, they will include fiqh issues where the fiqh issue is symbolic of a particular deviancy in Aqidah. Because at the end of the day, the religion of Islam, the, the uloom of Islam are mutadakhira, mutarabita. They're attached to each other. They go inside of each other. I mean, you cannot separate fiqh from Aqidah completely like that. Rather, there are some issues that the only people who took that opinion were people from a particular group or sect. And therefore, the fiqh issue became symbolic of a particular kind of aqidah. And that's why you find from the aqidah of Ahlul Sunnah is wiping over leather socks. Now, it's, not a, it's not a fiqh issue here. The meaning is that it became symbolic of Ahlul Sunnah versus a particular sect who used to wipe over their bare feet, for example. Another really good question that I got asked and I really wanted to address that question inshallah uh, was with regard to Allah's names. The, the hadith, and I'm going to actually, I wanted to bring you a, a piece of uh, a reference if I can get it quickly. The hadith in any case is the hadith of uh, Bukhari and Muslim of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in which he said, Inna lillahi tis'atan wa tis'een isma." Man ahsaha dakhala al jannah. Man ahsaha dakhala al jannah. Allah has 99 names. 100 minus 1. Allah has 99 names. 100 minus 1. Man ahsaha dakhala al jannah. Now it's this word here. First of all, the word 99 names here. The word 99, it doesn't mean only 99. How do we know that? Because that's not the word we use in Arabic. When we want to say only in Arabic, we say innama, innama al-mu'minuna ikhwa. Innama al-mu'minuna ikhwa. We don't say inna. Inna here doesn't have any hasar in it. It doesn't restrict the number. But it says Allah has 99 names, 100 minus 1. Maybe Allah has many more, but the meaning is that these 99 have a special quality about them. There's something special about them. For example, like you say, I have uh, 100 rand in my pocket prepared for sadaqah. Does that mean I might have 200, I might have 300, I might have 500. But I'm saying I have 100 rand in my pocket which is prepared for sadaqah. Yani there's a special quality about that 100. That's how we say in Arabic, Inna lillahi tis'atan wa tis'een isma. Allah has among all of his names 99. Mi'a illa wahida. Man ahsaha dakhal al-jannah. Now, they memorize it like that. But that's not the meaning of man ahsaha. Ahsaha, it says, Addahu wa ahata bihi wa dabatahu 
These are the meanings that were brought, some of the meanings brought in Arabic. And he counts them. So this is what we mentioned. Allah, Rahman, Rahim, Malik, You're counting them, right? You're memorizing them. You're actually making it precise. You're getting the knowledge of it. And someone knows what it's worth. They know the knowledge that comes from it. So Allah's names and attributes, my dear brothers and sisters, it has a knowledge to it. It's not just a name you memorize like that. Every name has an action, it has a knowledge, it has a dua you make through it. What did Allah Azza wa Jal say? Allah has the most beautiful, perfect names. Make dua to Allah with them. Ya Rahman, Ya Rahman, Irhamni, Ya Rahim, Ya Ghafoor, Ighfirli. Make dua with the name for what you want and act in accordance with it. Okay. If I tell you that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Al-Latif, what does Al-Latif mean? Al-Lutf, it means subtlety. The word Lutf in the Arabic language means subtlety. Think of the story of Yusuf, alayhi salatu wasalam. Yusuf, when he entered into the well, and then the next step, he was taken out and sold into slavery. Then he was purchased by the minister in Egypt. Then his wife tried to seduce him, and then he was imprisoned for it. And then the king had a dream. And then the person that Yusuf interpreted the dream for in prison told about the king, about the dream, and the king brought Yusuf out. But Yusuf didn't come out until he declared himself innocent of what happened. Then Yusuf was put in charge of the grain stores. Then his brothers came to seek the grain. Then he hid the cup in his younger brother's satchel, and then it was taken out, and then his younger brother was brought to him in a sort of a imagined slavery that his younger brother was captured. And then all of the family came back together, and the story is well known in Surah Yusuf. What do you see about that? You see the lutf of Allah. How subtle every step takes Yusuf nearer to reconciliation with his brothers and his parents, but he cannot see it. He can't see it because it's so subtle. I love there was a, a, a tabi'iyah and a lady from the tabi'in, وَكَانَتْ faqiha. She was a scholar of fiqh. She said something amazing. Wallahi, I, I was amazed by what she said. She said, when you make dua to Allah, Allah for money, Allah does not send down gold and silver from the sky. When you say, Ya Razzaq, Urzuqni, Oh, the one who provides, provide for me. Did you ever see gold and silver coins falling from the sky? Never. But what does Allah do? He will send you the reason for that rizq to come for you. So she said, when that reason comes, don't refuse it. This is her fiqh. She's faqiha. She said, when the reason comes to you, don't refuse it. This is your dua being answered. She said, don't refuse it. So for example, you said, Ya Razzaq, Razzuqni, Allah, give me rizq. And what happened? Few days goes by, or maybe in the instant, someone comes to you and says, ah, you know what it is? Maybe you and I could do something together. 
and you make istikhara and you decide to go. And from that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provides. Don't refuse and say it because you're refusing the answer to your dua. The answer is not gold and silver from the sky, but Allah will send you a cause, a way, a means for that to reach you. Is Allah able to send down gold and silver from the sky? Of course. Inna Allah ala kulli shay'in qadir. Allah can do anything. But the sunnah of Allah, the way of Allah is subtlety. That things come where you don't imagine. They get provision from where they could not imagine. They did not imagine it would come from there. Because Allah is Azza wa Jal is Latif. Allah is subtle. Now you know that. How are you going to behave when you make dua differently, right? How are you going to be in your patience waiting for your dua to be answered differently? How are you going to be when something happens like a calamity or a difficulty in your life? You're going to behave differently because now you knew something about Allah and you implemented it in your life. You didn't just say, Ya Latif, Ya Latif, Ya Latif. You said something, you learned it, you understand it. You made dubbed of it. You made dubbed of it, precision. And you got ilm of it. You knew the value of it. And then you implemented the action for it in your life. And that's the meaning of ahsaha, not just mem like making the number of names like that. That's very good, Shah. That was a question that I wanted to answer. I now want to talk about a final hadith that I had for you. I'm going to bring, it's actually perhaps we might mention more than one hadith, but at least I wanted to bring a hadith to talk about, and I wanted to talk about a ta'ifa, al-mansurah. Thawban, radiyallahu an, narrated, qala rasulullahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, la tazalu ta'ifa, min ummati zahirina ala al-haq, la yadurruhum man khadalahum, hatta ya'tiya amrullah. This hadith narrated by Muslim in his sahih, Abu Dawood, it's narrated by Tirmidhi and Ibn Majah and a number of the other scholars who narrated it with an isnad to so the Prophet وسلم, and the hadith is sahih. There will not cease to be a group of my ummah victorious upon the truth. Now this ظاهرين has two things that I want to highlight for you. First of all, لا تزالوا طائفة there will never ever stop being people upon the truth. That's a bushra, a glad tiding from the Prophet ﷺ. You don't have to worry. There will always, there's never going to be a time until every believer dies. There will never be a time when no one is left upon the truth. So you can take a glad tidings from the Prophet ﷺ here that the truth is always going to be there. And that truth, my dear brothers, is not going to be hidden. Because the Prophet ﷺ said, ظَاهِرِينَ عَلَى الْحَقِّ It's going to be manifest upon the truth. So the meaning of ظَاهِرِينَ, it can be victorious. Yani that they will be victorious. And it can also mean ظَاهِرِينَ, yani ظُهُورًا They are manifest. Everyone can see it upon the truth. This is important because as we said, we don't hide our belief. And we invite to it. We call people to it. And we proclaim it and we try to make the issues of Iman nice and clear and, and available for Muslims to learn and practice in their lives. 
ظاهرين على الحق and they will be upon the truth لا يضرهم من خذلهم there's many narrations لا يضرهم من خالفهم the ones who go against them the one who try to cheat them the ones who try to betray them they're not going to be harmed by them they're not going to be harmed and that shows that the haqq it has a'da it has enemies my brothers now bear in mind i'm never ever saying to you muhammad tim is the truth la wallah i told you the kitab and the sunnah and what the early generations were upon i'm saying to you that every time the truth is apparent the truth has enemies that's not my statement that's what the prophet sallallahu said and there's going to be enemies who are trying to take that truth away they want to extinguish the light of allah with their mouths but Allah is going to complete his light even if the disbelievers hate it Allah said Allah told us about every messenger we made for them an enemy for every messenger we made for them an enemy. Shayateen al insi wal jinn. Shayateen al insi wal jinn. Yuhi ba'aduhum wa kadalika ja'alna li kulli nabiyin aduwa. In this way, we made for every prophet an enemy. Shayateen al insi wal jinn. Shayateen from the men and the jinn. They inspire each other with deceptive speech. And if your Lord willed, they wouldn't do it. So leave them and what they invent. Every prophet had enemies. Enemies from the jinn and enemies from the men. And so it should not surprise a person that if they call to what the Prophet ﷺ called to, it shouldn't surprise them if they have some people who oppose them in that. Some of them oppose them upon knowledge. Some of them oppose them ala ilmin wa diraya. They have knowledge about it and they oppose, they oppose the, the truth based on knowledge. And some of them, they oppose the truth upon ignorance. They don't know. But they oppose the truth because they don't know what it is. Some people know and they oppose the truth on knowledge and some people oppose the truth because they don't know. So be prepared when you call to Allah and you call to the Prophet and you call to the Kitab and the Sunnah and the, what the Sahaba were upon. Expect that you're going to have some resistance. Isn't this the Sunnah of Allah Azza wa Jal? with the scholars who called to Islam from the past and the present times, it is. And Allah said, وَالْعَصْرِ إِنَّ الْإِنسَانَ لَفِي خُسْرِ إِلَّا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ وَتَوَاصَوْا بِالْحَقِّ وَتَوَاصَوْا بِالصَّبْرِ By time, indeed, mankind is at loss, except those who believe and do good deeds and call one another to the truth and call one another to be patient. So my dear brothers and sisters, I wanted to share that with you to begin with, 
just to understand that it is normal that you will have some people who don't want to hear the truth and some people who don't want the truth to spread. And that's okay because the Prophet ﷺ had much worse and much more difficult. So we're going to be patient. Those people who oppose the truth out of ignorance, we're going to try to open up to them, discuss with them and help them to understand. And those people who oppose the truth out of knowledge, and inshallah, as Allah said, if this group is upon the truth, they will not be harmed by the people that oppose them, nor those who seek to betray them or cheat them until the command of Allah comes while they are upon that. I wanted to read you some of the statements of the scholars about... I wanted to read you some of the statements of the scholars about this particular hadith. But before that, Abi Hurairah was asked, قِيلَ لِلنَّبِيِّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ أَيُّ النَّاسِ خَيْرٌ Which people are the best? قَالَ أَنَا وَمَنْ مَعِي Me and those who are with me, any my companions. قَالَ قِيلَ لَهُ ثُمَّ مَنْ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ قَالَ أَلَّذِينَ عَلَى الْأَثَرِ the people who stick to the narrations, meaning they take their beliefs, their practices from the authentic narrations, the book of Allah, the Sunnah. Uh, and of course, the book and the Sunnah tell us what the, what the Ummah agrees upon. They said, who, O Messenger of Allah? And he didn't answer after that. The hadith narrated by Ahmad in his Musnad and his hadith on Hassan, inshaAllah ta'ala. I wanted to read you some of the statements of the scholars about who the Ta'ifa al-Mansura is. Now, I'm not going to read you any modern scholars because we're not talking about today. We're not talking about South Africa. We're not talking about Muhammad Tim. We are talking about the classical, what the classical early great scholars of Islam said about who the Ta'ifa al-Mansura is. The first one, Ali ibn al-Madini, rahimahullah ta'ala. About the hadith, لا تزال طائفة من أمة ظاهرين على الحق لا يضرهم من خالفهم قالهم أهل الحديث. Ali ibn al-Madini was asked, who are the people who are the ta'ifa that is always going to be upon the truth? He said, أهل الحديث, the people of hadith. Now be careful here, he's not referring to a group. We're not talking about أهل الحديث in India or أهل الحديث. We're talking about people who are following the hadith, the scholars of hadith and those who came with them. The people who took their aqidah from the hadith. So Ali ibn al-Madini, he says, and this is narrated by Tirmidhi in his sunan, he says here, hum ahlul hadith. They are the people of hadith. And Ahmed ibn Hanbal rahimullah ta'ala was asked about the hadith of the Ummah breaking up into sects, all of them are in the fire except one. He said, about who is the, who is the firqa who is not in the fire? He said, إِن لَمْ تَكُنْ هَذِهِ الطَّائِفَةَ الْمُنْصُورَةَ أَصْحَابُ الْحَدِيثِ فَلَا أَدْرِي مَنْهُمْ If this group of, of people who are saved are not the people of hadith, I don't know who they are. The people of hadith meaning the people who stuck to the narrations and who stuck to the sunnah, of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Abdullah ibn al-Mubarak, the great Imam, he said about the hadith, لا تزال طائفة من أمتي ظاهرين على الحق 
He said, Hum indi ashabul hadith. These people, in my view, are the scholars of hadith, meaning the people who stick to the narrations and take their belief from the sunnah of the Prophet. That's narrated by Al Khatib, Al Baghdadi, with an authentic chain. And Abu Hatim, he said, I heard the Imam Ahmad ibn Sinan say with regard to the hadith, La tazalu min ummati ala al-haq. He said, Hum ahlul ilmi wa ashabul athar. Or ashabul athar. He said, They are the people of knowledge and the people who follow the narrations. Muhammad ibn Ismail Bukhari, rahimahullah ta'ala, was asked about the hadith. Al-Imam al-Bukhari, La tazalu ta'ifatun min ummati. فَقَالَ أَصْحَابُ الْحَدِيثِ They are the people of the hadith. And this athar is narrated by Al-Khatib in Sharaf Ashab Al-Hadith with an authentic chain, Sanadun Sahih. And it's narrated from Ahmed ibn, Ubay, uh, ibn, Ahmed ibn Abi Khalid that, he was, that Yazid ibn Harun was asked about the saved sect. He was asked about the saved sect that the Prophet ﷺ, he said, إِن لَمْ يَكُونُوا أَصْحَابِ الْحَدِيثِ فَلَا أَدْرِ مَنْهُمْ if they are not the people of hadith, I don't know who they are. <coughs> there are many narrations after that, but we start to go into the you know, few hundreds of years after that. So I just wanted to quote to you, what does it mean, Ashab al-Hadith? It means they are people who are attached to the hadith. They're not attached to any particular person. He didn't say they are the followers of Imam Ahmed. He didn't say that, and I don't mean in that in a bad way. I mean, he didn't attach them to one person. He didn't say that they are the followers of Abdullah ibn Umar, or that they are the people who are attached to uh, one of the Sahaba, or attached to one of the Tabi'een, or that they are the followers of Ibn Sirin. He said they are the people who are stuck to the Hadith, the people who study the Hadith, the people who learn it, who memorize it, who teach it, and who take their narrations from it, and the people who follow them and the people who follow them. And we know, for example, we know that certainly if we look at Imam Malik and Imam Shafi'i, Imam Ahmed, for example, they were in many ways better known for hadith than fiqh, in some ways. And they were known for hadith even more than they were known for, for fiqh. And you can see that by their books, none of them wrote a book of fiqh. Not even Abu Hanifa didn't write a book of fiqh, rahimahullah ta'ala. Uh, in terms of the fiqh of halal and haram. Their students wrote, but they didn't write. But they wrote books about aqidah, books about hadith. Abu Hanifa has a musnad of hadith, but it's small. But the point is that they were so attached to the hadith. If the hadith is authentic, that's my madhab. What do they mean by this? That I'm attached to the hadith. My madhab is there to bring you to the hadith, to the Qur'an. If you see later on that I made a mistake and I didn't go with the hadith, the hadith is it. And I think, wallahi, maybe you cannot bring a better example in this than the example of Al-Qadi Abi Yusuf. Rahimahullah ta'ala, the companion of Abi Hanifa. Rahimahullah. Wallahi, he had a love for the sunnah and the hadith. He loved the sunnah and the hadith. And any time he would find there was a hadith that was a little different to what his shaykh had told him, he would change the opinion of the madhab to match the hadith that he found. He used to love the hadith and he was deeply attached to the hadith of the Prophet These people are ashab al-hadith. 
the people who their attachment, their heart was connected to the hadith of the Prophet It wasn't connected to their own personality, their own opinion. Imagine you have the students that Abu Hanifa has, rahimahullah. And he, the world famous Imam, but he doesn't attach people to him. He attaches people to the Quran and the Sunnah. Yes, you need the Imam. The Imam is there to help you to learn and to take you there. But they attach themselves to the Hadith and they love the Hadith. And they considered the Hadith to be definitive in all matters of Islam. Aqeedah, fiqh, manners, and everything else. They took the Hadith and they stuck to it. So we also need to attach ourselves to Hadith. In the sense that we don't remain ignorant of the hadith. Because remember, I said to you, our aqidah is what? Musnada. It has chains of narration. We don't bring something from somebody's opinion. We bring it with a chain to some imam of Islam, to the sahaba, to the Prophet ﷺ. We bring it with chains like that. So this aqidah, it's very, where do we find it, Yani? In the first place, we find it in the books of hadith. We didn't take it from anywhere else, Yani. We find it in the books of Isnad, Asanid, the books that have chains of narration. So that's how we take it. And this is very, very important. So we attach ourselves and we love the hadith. And we attach ourselves to the sunnah and we study it. And when we find a hadith, we consider that hadith to be definitive. No doubt the hadith has fiqh. I'm not saying to you hadith doesn't have fiqh in it. Of course it does. There are hadith that are abrogated, a hadith that are weak. There is a great amount of study. But your heart, where is it attached? Is it attached to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? Or did you attach your heart to a personality? And that's not right. Doesn't matter who the personality is, how amazing the Imam or the Shaykh is, don't attach your heart to people, attach it to Allah and attach it to the Sunnah of the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So I wanted to kind of uh, and quote that to you uh, from some of the early, early Imams. You might not recognize some of their names, but some of them are from the early Imams. And the ones who were the shuyukh of the likes of Al-Bukhari and before Bukhari and they came and they were his teachers that he learned from, people from the tabi'in, the early generations. They used to encourage people to hold on to, to hold on to the hadith and to hold on to the sunnah and to study it. And of course, we are not belittling the science. We're not saying anyone can just open and anyone can just figure everything out. But start learning, start attaching your heart to the hadith of the Prophet وسلم, and you will become closer to Allah through sticking to the sunnah like that. And everything that you study, any teacher, doesn't matter whether it's a great imam, a great sheikh, or even a miskeen talib like Muhammad Tim, it doesn't matter who it is, as long as you see them as the way to reach the sunnah, if as long as they're seen as the way to reach the sunnah and the Quran, and you're not attached to them, but you're attached to the Quran and the Sunnah, insha'Allah ta'ala, you will not find it to be any problem. Because you will realize, everybody has things accepted and rejected, except for the Prophet I also wanted to deal with something. I wanted to deal with something that people might ask about. They might say, and I think this is a nice question to finish on. They might say, but look, Muhammad Tim, you have given us one perspective and it was, you know, it was a good perspective. But at the end of the day, there were many great Imams, far greater than you, 
and those imams were of a different view to you. Is that not reasonable to say? There were many great imams, greater than you, way more knowledgeable than you, who took a different position to the position that you take. I say in this, that in reality, the, as we said, our attachment is to the sunnah, not to any one person. But I wanted to share something with you. A person who misses out on the sunnah in something is of two types. As Shatibi mentioned it, if I'm not mistaken, in Al-Itisal, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, he mentioned it. When he said, and I'm just going to paraphrase what he said briefly. If a person is known for the sunnah, and loving the sunnah, and calling to the sunnah, and they fall into a mistake or an error, that mistake and error doesn't take them outside of the sunnah. And if a person is known for innovations and adding things into the religion that doesn't belong, the fact that the person follows a sunnah, you saw him with a miswak or a siwak, it doesn't make him from the people of the sunnah. What matters is the general methodology the person is upon. That's what matters, not individual actions. So there were many great scholars of the past who lived in very difficult times. All of them loved the sunnah. They aimed for the sunnah. They tried for the sunnah. And some of them got a lot of it and some of them got some of it. But you know how sincere they were? Many of them returned back at the end of their life. And I'm just going to quote you from among those who turned back at the end of their life. I think one of the amazing, amazing, amazing... Uh, Stories is the story of Imam al-Ghazali rahimahullah ta'ala. He spent a lot of his life, Imam al-Ghazali rahimahullah is a great scholar of Islam. He spent a lot of his life indulging sort of philosophically based beliefs, beliefs that came from philosophy and things like that. At the end of his life, he used to warn the people from it. And he rahimahullah ta'ala died with Sahih al-Bukhari on his chest. Telling the people, stick to the hadith. All of this that I wasted my time in, don't look at it. But what you should do is to stick to the hadith. And he quoted also that he spent the last part of his life studying Sahih al-Bukhari. The point is that I'm not saying any, anyone can make mistakes. But look at the sincerity. When they saw that this method didn't work out for them and it wasn't the right thing, they didn't say, I'm going to stick upon it and this is my way. They changed. From the great examples of this is Al-Imam Abu Al-Hasan Al-Ash'ari Rahimahullah Ta'ala Rahmatullahi Alayhi Who was upon the methodology of the Kullabiyya In the early part of his life And subhanAllah at the end of his life He repented from the vast majority of it Rahmatullahi Alayhi In his book Al-Ibana And in case somebody says to me Al-Ibana is not his book I'm going to quote you two Ash'ari scholars Who said it's his book Al-Bayhaqi said that it's his book And Ibn Asakir said that it's his book both of them, they attributed this book to Abu Hassan at the end of his life. He made tawbah. He turned away from it. He said, what I was upon was not the right way, and this is what I hold on to. And what he quoted is the statements of the hadith, the statements of the people who came before, the belief about Allah, which is the correct belief from the Quran and the Sunnah. Subhanallah, great imams of Islam who were not frightened to say, I got it wrong. From among them is Al-Imam Abu Al-Ma'ali, Imam Al-Haramain, Al-Juwaini, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, who was also from the people who repented at the end of his life and warned the people against rhetoric and against philosophy and these kind of philosophically based beliefs. He repented, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, and he warned the people against it. 
and he told the people to follow the way of the early generations and the way of the athar, the way of the hadith. But we shouldn't, you know, in this, yes, people will come and say, no, it's not authentic, no, he didn't mean that. The point is that these great imams were not frightened, yani. they wanted the truth. They wanted the truth. And sometimes they missed out on it in some ways, but they strive for it. And when they, even at the end of their life, if they realized it, they would change. So a person shouldn't be shy to admit if they got something wrong, or shouldn't be shy to admit if they wanted to change something. Because if these great imams can change themselves towards the end of their lives, then indeed, anyone can change themselves. And there are many, many other examples of that. I like the example of Ar-Razi. Ar-Razi was known, really known for his rhetoric and, you know, it is said that he walked one day and there was an old woman. She was sitting on the stairs, you know, beside the group and all the people came in and they said, do you know who this is? She said, no, I don't have any idea who is this. So this is the Imam, Fakhruddin Ar-Razi. He has a million proofs that Allah exists. And the woman, she looked, she said, if he didn't have a million doubts, he wouldn't need a million proofs. The point is, at the end of his life, what did he say? At the very end of his life, when he died, he said, I wish that I could die upon the belief of the women of Najran, the old women. I want to be like that old woman. I want to die upon the belief of the Sunnah. I don't want any of this rhetoric and philosophy. I want to die upon the Sunnah. I want to die upon the belief that that old woman had. I want to die upon the belief of the old women of Najran. And many more examples that are uh, narrated regarding these different uh, uh, Imams and how they came towards the end of their life and they changed their belief. And some can say they didn't change it completely. And that's true. There were aspects we would still disagree with. And some can say that maybe, you know, do we know that book was from them? But I think it happened to too many people. And it became tawatur now. It's not one person or two people. It became from so many of the imams of those people that when they reached the end of their life, they told the people, you stick to the Quran and the Hadith. You take it from the Quran and the Hadith. And I'm going to quote you a couple of things about philosophy. I'm going to quote you the statement of a, of a Shafi'i, rahimahullah ta'ala, that he said, Hukmi fi ahl al-kalam, an yudrabu bil jaridi wa ni'al, wa yutafu bihim fil qaba'ili wal ashair, wa yuqalu hadha jaza'u man taraka al-kitabu wa sunnah, wa aqbala ala al-kalam. This is what Shafi'i said about philosophy and rhetoric. He said, my ruling about the people of rhetoric is they should be beaten with palm leaves and slippers. And then they should be paraded around the towns on a donkey and it should be cried out. This is the reward of the person who busies themselves with philosophy and leaves the Quran and the Sunnah. Abu Yusuf, the famous student of Abi Hanifa, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, man talab al-ilm, man talab tazandaq. Whoever seeks knowledge through rhetoric and philosophy has become a zindiq, yani heretic. And Abu Umar ibn Abdul Bar, the great Maliki scholar, he said, Ajma'a ahlul fiqhi wal athar, min jami'i ahlil amsar, 
أن أهل الكلام أهل البدع والزيغ لا يعدون عند الجميع في طبقات العلماء وإنما العلماء أهل الأثر والمتفقه فيه He says harsh statement Ibn Abdu'l-Bar he made He said there is consensus There is consensus among all the scholars of fiqh and hadith from every single city that the people of rhetoric, any philosophy and rhetoric, they are the people of innovation and misguidance. None of them should be considered among the ulama. The ulama are the people of the narrations and the people who seek their fiqh from the hadith. Ouch, that's painful. I'm not saying, I'm just telling you that you don't be living in this like, you know, ghita on your head with some cover over your eyes. This is what they said. They didn't like that the people study from these ways of philosophy and the Greeks and the Romans and whatever. They wanted the people to take their ilm from, from the book of Allah. And this is something the four Imams were unanimous upon. Abu Hanifa warned against it. He took it in his earlier part of his life and he warned, he even warned his son against it, he warned his children against it and he warned his followers against it. Abu Yusuf warned about it so much that he called the person Zindiq, a heretic. Ibn Abdul Bar from the Malikiyah, you heard his statement. A Shafi'i said, beat them with palm leaves and slippers and parade them on with a donkey. And Imam Ahmad has st similar statements to these Imams. The religion is taken from the Hadith, from the Sunnah of the Prophet from the Quran, from the Ijma', from the great scholars of Islam. It's not taken from Aristotle. Aristotle never used to believe in God at all. He used to say religion is useful for controlling the masses and making people, you know, it's useful for building people up, but I don't believe any of it is true or most of it is not true. How can we build our religion upon the beliefs of Aristotle or upon the beliefs of any of the other philosophers and the people of falsafa and kalam? So it's important, inshallah, to bear this in mind. And again, I'm quoting from narrations. I'm not quoting my own opinion. But if you ask me, my madhab is the madhab of Abi Hanifa and Malik and Shafi'i and Ahmed fi dhammi ilm al-kalam. That ilm al-kalam, there is nothing good in it. That's my madhab. If you have a different opinion, you have to bring an ethic for it. Because there's nothing good in it, wallahi. That's, I think, a nice sort of topic for us to stop on. And inshallah, it's not a big issue because inshallah for us, we don't, I mean, we shouldn't be involved in that sort of stuff anyway. But just be careful, just be careful that we always attach ourselves to the Sahih Hadith and to the Sunnah and to the scholars of the Sunnah, the scholars of Hadith, the great Imams of Islam. That's where we take our beliefs from. That's where we take our religion from. Hada wallahu a'lam. Wassalatu wassalam ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. I don't know... Uh, Ahmed, you can show me if you have some questions. I think there were definitely some questions from the youth uh, thing, and there might be some questions from today, insha'Allah ta'ala. So we can take those questions. Bi'ithnillah al-Aziz. If you say that the four Imams were upon the aqidah of the early generations, how is it that people who follow those Imams today are of a different belief? I had to summarize the question because I want to keep it a bit vanilla. Uh, so how can they be upon that belief? That's a very good question. And that's a historical question, right? That's not a question of opinion. It's a question of history. How did we get from uh, 
Al-Shafi'i and Abu Hanifa criticizing Ilm al-Kalam to students of them taking Ilm al-Kalam. And how did we get there? That's a historical question. And there's no doubt that this, that as the Ummah, the age goes by and time goes by, there is no doubt, no doubt at all that uh, misguidance increases and influence increases. I think a lot of people were attracted to the kind of logic and uh, philosophy of some of the groups because at the end of the day, when you first look at it, it could look attractive, right? Isn't that what happened to Jahim ibn Safwan? Jahim ibn Safwan had a lot of knowledge, by the way. He was not ignorant. He was not like an Ammi who didn't know anything. And what happened is he debated with the Indian philosophers and he ended up denying all of Allah's attributes. And we all agree, by the way, everyone agrees that's wrong. The Ashari's Maturi, everybody agrees that's wrong. He denied all the attributes of Allah except existence. Why? Because he tried to use the, the rules of logic and philosophy to apply to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he tried to win an argument, but by winning an argument, he lost his deen. He won the argument against those philosophers, but he ended up denying everything about Allah except his existence. So it can sometimes seem like a good way of doing things. Like I know in da'wah, a lot of people are attracted to the kalam or the kalami argument for the existence of God. You need to prove God exists through logic and, and rhetoric. And a lot of people are attracted because they think, wow, you know, I can logically prove that Allah exists. But that same logic has negative consequences that leads to denying things about Allah and rejecting things from the Quran and the Hadith. So at the end of the day, and it's a historical question, yani how did we end up here? It doesn't matter. What matters is that we go back there. What did Imam, from the Imams, Imam Malik and others, that the latter part of this ummah will not be corrected except by what corrected the earlier part. So we go back to what we were upon before. What do you say to a person who says that Salafis are extremists? I want to understand this word Salafi to start with. I'm not like against it or in favor of it. I'm, it, I'm neutral on the issue. What does the word Salaf mean? Does the word Salaf come in the Quran? Illa maqad salaf, right? It means what came before, right? A person who came before you. The Prophet said to Fatima, Ana salafun laki aw kamaqal. I'm a salaf for you, and I'm going to precede you. So the term salaf, what does it refer to? It should refer to the people who came before us. Which people who came before us? Because lots of people came before us. We live in, you know, 1400 years, 1440 whatever years after the Hijrah. So, Generally, what they refer to is Al-Qurun Al-Mufaddala. The generations which were preferred by the Prophet The Sahaba and the Tabi'een and the followers of the Tabi'een. Does that include Imam Abi Hanifa? It does. He met some of the Sigar Sahaba. He met Anas ibn Malik, but he didn't narrate from him a hadith. That's what they say in his biography. He met Anas ibn Malik. But he didn't narrate, he, he was young, he didn't narrate a hadith from him, but he, he met him. He was from the, 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 uh, the Tabi'een, right? Does that include Imam Malik? Yeah, this, this is what we're talking about, the Imams, the, the Salaf are the people, the early people. Yeah. So if by the term Salafi you mean by that, following the way of the early people and sticking to the Quran and the Sunnah the way the Sahaba understood it, I don't see anything wrong with that. But if you mean by it some kind of hizb or some kind of group that you have to carry this card and 
you know, you have to follow this way and you, it's my way or the highway. And any, I don't think that we should make any, any, any group. Rather, what should be is, if you're asking me, should I call myself Salafi? That's up to you. Should I be Salafi? For certain, you should. In other words, you should be someone who follows Al-Kitab wa Sunnah wa ma ajma alayhi Salaful Ummah. The Quran and the Sunnah and what the earliest of the scholars and the people, the companions and those who followed them were upon. If you like the word, fine. If you don't like the word, no problem. Take any term you like. Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, Ahlul Hadith, Ahlul Athar, Ashabul Hadith, whatever you like. But one thing I like and I want to note is that Ahlul Sunnah never attribute themselves to one person, nor do they ever attribute themselves to a city or to a place like that. They don't. So they say, for example, Athari, I'm connected to the, the, the hadith. Ahlul hadith, Ashabul hadith, or Salafi, I'm attached to the early generations, or Ahlul Sunnah, the people of the Sunnah, or Al Jama'ah, the people who are united upon one belief. Right? But you don't attribute yourself to a person. That's why I don't like anybody to call me Wahhabi, even though Al-Wahhab is Allah's name. But I don't like that name because it's attributing to a person, right? I'm not a follower of a person. I'm trying to follow the Prophet wasallam, the Quran and the Sunnah. So that's, yani, for me, that's my take on it. Yani, it shouldn't be a hizb because Allah doesn't, doesn't like for us to make a tahazzub, yani, to make groups and things. But it should be a belief system you follow. Yani, I follow the Kitab and the Sunnah and what the early generations were upon. And if you like that name, Alhamdulillah. And if you like a different name, La Ba'sabidalik. I don't make any ilzam upon you for it. I don't say you have to take it or you don't have to take it. Uh, many people say Aqeedah should not be taught to the people because they would not understand and ignorance is bliss. غير المغضوب عليهم ولا الضالين. خلاص. That's it. And Allah never ever praised ignorance in the Quran. Find me one ayah, one hadith, anywhere, anywhere where Allah praised ignorance, I'll go in your, your tariqah. Allah never praised ignorance and the Prophet never ever praised ignorance, not even once. Rather, Allah Azza wa Jal, He told the Prophet to say, Then a person says, This aqeed is going to confuse people. No, I tell, shall I tell you what confuses people? Ilmul kalam. Ilm al-Kalam confuses me. When I study Usul al-Fiqh and we come to Ilm al-Kalam, wallah, by the end of it, I'm completely confused. Because it didn't come from the Kitab and the Sunnah. That's why it confuses everybody. If it was from other than Allah, you'll find a lot of ikhtilaf in it. That's why, subhanAllah, like these new beliefs and different things, they're confusing, of course. But if you teach the people, and tu'mina billahi wa malaikatihi wa kutubihi wa rusulihi wa al-yawmi al-akhir wa an tu'mina bil-qadri khayrihi wa sharri What's confusing about that? Nothing. You teach people to believe in Allah as Allah said about himself, as the Prophet said about him. Numirruha kama ja'at. We bring the narrations as they came and we say them as they, as they were. Is there anything confusing about that? Nothing, wallahi. That you cannot, if you say belief in Islam is confusing, this is a big accusation against Allah and against the Prophet Because in reality, you're accusing Allah of making the most important thing in this religion confusing. And tell me one ayah where ignorance is bliss. Allah raises people with iman and ilm. Shahid Allah. Allah bears witness. 
Allah bears witness that there is no God worthy of worship but him, so do the angels and people of knowledge. Every time ignorance came, wallahi, Allah criticized it and rebuked it. So we just say that if you teach people simple aqeedah, according to Quran and Sunnah, no problem. But yeah, if we get into rhetoric and we get, yeah, it's going to get very confusing for people, wallahi. Really confusing. As people who study usul fiqh will, yani, you realize when you see a lot of it there, you know, like you're talking about haddul had and wallahi, like it's making your head hurt. What's the definition of a definition? And wallahi, the, the, the Islam never came with this, wallahi. This is just yani, very confusing. Yani. What can some do with the current groups of Muslims claiming uh, that they are fighting jihad? Khwani, very simple. The same rules apply. There is no doubt jihad is mentioned many times in the Quran, right? We all read it in the Quran. We all read that hadith in the sunnah. But what was the understanding of the companions? What was the understanding of the imams? Now see here, jihad has two aspects, right? It has an aqadi aspect and it has a fiqhi aspect. What do I mean by that? It's a matter of fiqh in the end of the day. Generally, where do you find it? In the books of, of fiqh, right? In the books of the madahib. You find it after, uh, after hajj in most of the madahib, if I'm not mistaken. You find it in the last bab of ibadat. The last chapter of ibadat. Uh, the last chapter of worship before you start mu'amalat. Normally that's where they, they mention it in the books of fiqh. So it's a fiqhi issue. It has rules and regulations like prayer. If you're going to pray, can you pray without wudu? You can't. Can you pray without facing the qibla? You can't. Can you pray without standing if you're able? You can't. So just like prayer has conditions and prerequisites and rules and regulations, so do all of the other ibadat in Islam. Find me an ibadat that doesn't have rules and regulations. Even dhikr, which is from the most general of ibadat, you can't say it in the bathroom and it's better to say it upon tahara. And You know, there are rules and regulations about every single ibadat. But it has an aqadi aspect as well, an aqidah aspect, which is where people have deviancy in aqidah related to this topic. Like the khawarij, for example, uh, the issue of takfir of the Muslims, declaring the Muslims to be kafir based on major sins and therefore fighting against them because you consider the person who does a major sin to be kafir. This is a deviant ideology. So this should be taken from the ulama, people of knowledge, should be taken from the books of fiqh, from the books of aqidah, and in big issues like this, do you take it from some guy on the internet? You don't, right? Where do you take big issues? When there comes to them a matter of safety and fear, they spread it around. The munafiqeen, they let everybody have their word. And if they returned it back to the Rasul, إلى الرسول, وإلى أولي الأمر منهم, if it wasn't for the mercy of Allah and His grace, you would have followed the shaitan. But how do you do it? You return it back to the people of knowledge among you and they will give you the correct ruling about it. So you take it from the senior people of knowledge. You take it from the big scholars. You don't take it from some guy on the internet that you don't know who he is. You take it from the big scholars. And from that, you understand the rulings. And I find, to be honest, I give you a piece of advice. I find this piece of advice. If you are in an issue which is a nazila, or which is from the mustajidat, 
the issues which are like new, like wars in this country or fighting in this place. This is like a nazila, right? It's like something which is, it came down new. It didn't come down in the Quran. Like it's something, a new issue we're dealing with. Then these issues, they should, you should take your time with them and you should seek from the major scholars and you should go back to the classical scholars where the nazila didn't exist. Because otherwise you're going to say this sheikh is just telling me because he's just paid, paid by the government and they, you know, and all this stuff. Leave all of that. Go back to the classical books of the madhab. Go back to the classical books of aqeedah. Go back to the kalam of Ibn al-Qayyim when he talks about the levels of jihad. Go into the statements of the scholars of that time who there's no tuhmah, there's no accusation. And learn your religion properly and upon knowledge and you act upon knowledge, not upon We're living in a very complex environment where there are different sects. What's your advice on attending community-related issues? I believe you should. I believe that we as Muslims might have some issues between us and they might even be big issues. But wallahi, when it comes to the maslaha of the Muslims, like for example, the issues of, you know, some countries try to ban the hijab or they try to stop you building, allowing to build a masjid or they don't allow you to give the adhan. These things which affect all the Muslims, I don't see there's any harm. If the issues between you are not issues of kufr and iman, it's not issues of disbelief, then there is no harm in for the benefit of the community. The Prophet even he made the sulh in the time of uh, Mecca, which he made this, the, the, the promise that they made and the issues with the, the sulh in Medina with the, the Jews about making peace and treating people justly and so on. For the maslaha amma, there is no problem in uh, you coming together as a group of Muslims, but there is a condition from the most important conditions. It's a condition, shartun aqadi here, it's aqeedah condition. That is that you do so without compromising your aqeedah and without accepting the mistakes of others. It is not like come together and we'll all join, hold hands and we pretend that there's no differences between us and we'll all be friends. That's not from the aqeedah of Ahl sunnah But you come and say, this is my belief. That's what I'm upon. I don't accept that belief. But here we're talking about the right to pray. Yeah, for sure. And we can move as one when it comes to the right to open the masjid or the right to pray or the right for the adhan to be given or the right for the women to wear niqab or whatever masalih amma there might be, but you do not compromise your deen or your aqidah for it. You don't come and say to somebody that, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to pretend I'm the same as you. And, you know, even they do that with the Jews and Christians. They say, look, let's just all call ourselves, you know, one, and we all just work together. No, but you work together on something if there's a general benefit, but not by compromising your religion or aqidah. You remain clear upon what you're upon, and you don't accept what is wrong. But sometimes there is a greater maslaha in terms of public affairs and community-related issues. Encouraging the people to build a masjid upon the sunnah. Wallahi, I would love the more masjid upon the sunnah, the better it would be. No harm in building a masjid and building a masjid upon the sunnah, how excellent it is. Alhamdulillah, I believe I've seen many masjid, alhamdulillah, uh, masjid that are, you know, the imams and the committee members are connected to the sunnah, they love the sunnah, they want it. But yeah, for sure, I would love to see people come and to establish more masajid and marakis upon the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So be indeed is something that would bring happiness to everybody.
can you please elaborate for us the proper meaning of Iman? Uh, we spoke about the meaning of Iman in the lesson. We said uh, that we quoted the statement of uh, Al-Bukhari, I met a thousand scholars from the people of the towns. Every single one of them said, Iman is statement and action, it goes up and down. And we said that many scholars, especially you sometimes get people locally and stuff that give you a different opinion to that, but we gave our evidence in the class. So you can go back to the YouTube video for that, inshallah. Can ilmul kalam be used to debate an atheist? That's where I think it shouldn't be. And I do see what people's attraction to like go logically, but I asked my sheikh about it. And I said, sheikh, how can we address an atheist with adilla aqliya? We want to give intellectual evidences, but without ilmul kalam. The sheikh, he said, what you need to do is you need adillatun aqliyatun shar'iya. Evidences which are in the Quran and the Sunnah, but are based upon or, or reach out to a person's intellect. I'll give you an example. أَمْ خُلِقُوا مِنْ غَيْرِ شَيْءٍ أَمْ هُمُ الْخَالِقُونَ أَمْ خَلَقُوا السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ بَلْ لَا يُقِنُونَ This is addressing the intellect, right? Were they created from nothing or did they create themselves or did they create the heavens and the earth? Rather, they are not certain. That's an intellectual argument. But it's an intellectual argument that's approved by the Quran, by Allah. So these intellectual, logical arguments that are approved by the Quran, there is no problem with it. Adillatun aqliyatun shar'iyya. Amongst us are those who want to stick to the truth, but we are a distant community and far away from one another. How can we become united and not harm each other with evil? Well, it's true. It's not nice to see people distant from one another. And I think events like this are a beautiful chance to bring people together, to meet people who are like-minded, to get people to cooperate upon what is good. I do find that sometimes people can over-cooperate. What I mean by that is, they try to kind of get in each other's way, you know, step on each other's toes. Right, I'm taking over your masjid tomorrow. You know, no, no, I'm good, you know, like, and they get on each other's toes. But what we need is ta'awun. Ta'awunu ala al-birri wa taqwa wa la ta'awunu ala al-ithmi wa Cooperate upon righteousness and keeping away from sin and don't cooperate upon sin and transgression. So when you meet like-minded people and you see how can we work together, how can we collaborate, how can we arrange talks and lectures? How can we bring local mashayikh to benefit us? How can we establish a markaz or a masjid in an area which needs it, which doesn't have anything at the moment? And many things that people can come together with. But wallahi, don't destroy yourselves among, don't, don't fight among yourselves and destroy yourselves between. If you hold the same belief and you're upon the same any methodology, don't make your, you know, your bets between you. You're fighting between you. Because wallahi, this only, it just takes away your energy and it makes your da'wah, it makes it weak. Can you advise on the pathway to take to become a scholar of hadith? It's a beautiful question. The person said, if you told us we have to take, you know, we're taking our deen from the hadith. Wallahi, it's a beautiful question. So the science of hadith is actually more than one science, right? The ilm al-hadith is more than one science. It's not just one science. For example, there is Mustalah uh, al-Hadith or Ulum al-Hadith where you study the technicalities of the Hadith. There is Mutun al-Hadith where you study the texts of the Hadith. There is Fiqh al-Sunnah where you take the Fiqh, like the Halal and Haram rulings from the Hadith and then you go to the Madhab. Yani you go backwards. Instead of going from the Madhab to the Hadith, you go from the Hadith to the 
to the madhab. Yani. It's called fiqh sunnah. It's not to be done aside from fiqh madhab. It, it's together. Yani. They go together. Fiqh sunnah. And there are many other sciences of hadith. Each one of them has a pathway. And that means that, and I mean books vary, but you should aim to memorize some texts. Could be poetry. It could be uh, prose. And you aim to study certain books. So I'm going to tell you the, the one that we use for Al-Madrasatul Umariyah. I'll read it for you. The one that we do for Al-Madrasatul Umariyah. Let me just grab it for you in the science of hadith. And of course, you do this with the, with the people of knowledge. For Ilm al-Hadith at the moment, what we are doing is we start off with an introduction to the history of the Sunnah, the science of hadith, the chains of narration, takhrij, and then we go on to, in the science of hadith, we take al-bayquniyyah, then we take nukhbatul fikr, then we take ikhtisar ulum al-hadith, and then we take al-fiyatul iraqi. That's how we take it. And in terms of memorization, if you have the memorization to do it, just go straight for al-fiyatul iraqi. If you don't, then take qasab al-sukkar, the manzuma of the nazam of Nukhbat uh, al-Fikr by Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar, rahimahullah ta'ala. In hadith texts, we take Al-Arba'een al-Nawawiyyah, the 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawawi, Riyadh al-Salihin, Bulugh al-Maram. And then after that, we take Al-Lu'lu' wal-Marjan, Fima al-Tafaqa alayhi shaykhan the hadith of Bukhari and Muslim together. And then we take the Zawa'id, any the extra hadith of Bukhari, the extra hadith of Muslim, the extra hadith of Abi Dawood al-Tirmidhi al-Nasa'i and Ibn Majah. In the science of takhrij, we take some books on usul al-takhrij, al-ta'asili usul al-takhrij, some books like that. But that's not so like, I mean, you can find just general books on that. And in the science of ilal, we start with, that's the hidden defects. We start with Kitab al-Tamiz by al-Imam Muslim. And then we go to... Uh, we go to Al-Ilzamat wa Tatabu' by Imam Al-Darqutni, and then we do Sharh ila Al-Tirmidhi by Al-Hafidh ibn Rajab. So that's the path that we take with AMU for the program for teaching the science of hadith. In terms of hifth, as I said, I think I went through the hifth. A basic hifth, we do Al-Bayquniyyah, then the 40 hadith of Al-Nawawi, and we do Qasab Al-Sukkar by Al-Amir Al-San'ani, and we do Umdatul Ahkam by Abdul Ghani al-Maqtisi. For the advanced hifth, we do al-Arba'een al-Nawawiyyah, al-Fiyat al-Iraqi, Bulugh al-Maram, al-Lu'lu al-Marjan, and then the Zawa'id of the Qutb al-Sitta until the student memorizes the whole Qutb al-Sitta. That's the program that we have. That doesn't mean this program is like, you know, the only program. Now, there are many alternatives. I mean, this program is slightly biased towards the Shafi'iyyah, right? Apart from Umdat al-Ahkam, which is Hanbali. But generally, it's like, that's because in the institute we teach Shafi'i fiqh primarily. It's not me, Sheikh Abdul Rahman. <laughs> Sheikh Abdul Rahman, Allah he's sahibu nafas in Shafi'i. He loves his Shafi'i fiqh. So the, because we're teaching Shafi'i fiqh and usul, it makes sense that our hadith and our mustalah, it makes it nice to take it from ulama of the Shafi'iya because it kind of blends in together. We're going to talk about that in studying the madhab next week. The issue of trying to find consistency in the different books you study. But anyone could study from any madhab. It's not, it's not madhab related. It's just that we slightly incline towards, like where there are two books, 
we, we incline towards the one that has the Shafi'i author so that it's consistent for the students all the way through. That's our methodology for science of hadith. Very quickly, where do things like linguistic and mathematicals of the Quran, uh, mathematic miracles of the Quran fit in? It's a ilm in ulum al-Quran. It comes under ulum al-Quran. Mu'jizat al-Quran. I'jaz al-Quran, they call it. And there is ifratun wa tafriq and wasatiya in it. There is extremism on both sides and there is wasatiya. Extremism in this, there's a lot. In I'jaz al-Quran, there is extremism. And some people change the tafsir of the Quran away from the tafsir. Nobody ever heard of it before, so they can claim it's a miracle. This is very bad, Allah. And some people bring miracles that nobody from the Salaf said it ever. So I really don't like this like exaggeration on Al-I'jaz, I'jaz Al-Quran, but just balance, yani bring all of the things that are miraculous from the language, from the knowledge, from the Ulum uh, Al-Quran and so on. Bring all of that and present it to the people, no problem, but don't exaggerate in, in this issue. And it comes under Ulum Al-Quran. After every hundred years, Allah sends a reformer, please explain. That's true. Ala ra'si kulli mi'ati sana. On the time of every hundred years, Allah sends someone to call them back to the ahadith of the Prophet the Quran, the way of the early generation. That's what happens. Someone comes to call people back. It doesn't make sense to speculate. It just is that blessing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't let us go. Always you stay, there remains a group upon the truth and Allah sends people from time to time to renew people's attachment to the Quran and the Sunnah. Okay, can you please shed a light upon reliance upon weak hadith? When is it allowed or not allowed? What happens when it leads to establishing a practice? So by weak hadith, there are two types of hadith to talk about. Actually, there are three. Hadithun da'fuhu shadid. Wa hadithun da'fuhu yaseer. Wa hadithun hasanun li ghayrihi. Three types of hadith. One is a hadith which is da'fuhu shadid. It has severe weakness. Mawdu' da'if jiddan la asla lahu. This one, la yusminu wa la yuhni min ju'a. Just... Don't even think. Only you learn it just to keep away from it. Then there is a hadith, da'fuhu yaseer. It's weak, but its weakness is small. This one, yu'tabaru bihi. You take i'tibar. What does it mean, i'tibar? You keep it in your mind. Perhaps you will find a supporting narration for it later on. Perhaps it's weak in that scholar's view, but later on you find the hadith has a supporting chain. So you make it mu'tabar, and you think about it. You keep it in your mind. You write it down in the books of fiqh sometimes when you don't have anything. Be careful when a Tirmidhi says, for example, The most authentic hadith on the topic is this. Does it mean the hadith is authentic? Doesn't. It means it's the most authentic I have. It might be authentic, it might be weak, it might be fair, but it's the best I have. And Imam Ahmed used to say, Al-hadithu da'if ahabbu ilayya min ra'i al-rijal. I would prefer a weak hadith than just somebody's opinion. But I believe what Imam Ahmed meant here is al-hadith hasan li ghayrihi. A hadith which is weak but is then raised up to the level of fair because of supporting narrations. So my advice is the hadith which is hasan li ghayrihi, you can implement it. The hadith which is slightly weak, you can bear it in mind. And if you have nothing else on the topic, you can take it into account 
but it's not really to be yani, implemented or acted upon, but you can keep it in mind because it's only slightly weak. You can keep it in mind, and especially if you don't have anything else on the topic. And the hadith, which is severely weak, there is just you learn it to keep away from it. That's all. I'm going as quick as I can because I know it's almost Maghrib time. If a woman is upon the Quran, the Sunnah, and the husband is not, and the husband does not want to have children because of difference of belief, what would be the way forward? Well, I don't feel like that this is something that would need to come between the wife and the husband in that much. I think that, inshallah ta'ala, she could, you know, treat him in a good way with gentleness and kindness. Because his belief that she mentioned, it's not, it's not like he's like not Muslim or he's got a crazy belief. No, he's Muslim, but he has some mistakes in his belief. Try to gently correct him, explain to him slowly and softly, encourage him. But for him to say he doesn't want to have kids because in case my kids grow up, you know, like, I don't know, like, that's, that's like scary to me, you know, like, it, it makes me scared, wallahi. I know if there's no other choice, maybe they can try to bring to an imam or a sheikh who can reconcile between them. But it's hard because who do you bring to which sheikh? His sheikh or her sheikh? Or you bring them both to fight it out among the sheikhs. It's a bit hard, right? It's a little bit hard. But wallahi, my advice honestly is start with softness. Wallahi, Fir'aun is the worst example of kufr that you can think of, right? Fir'aun. What did Allah say to Musa and Harun? Say to him a gentle word. Perhaps he will remember or perhaps he will fear Allah. So be gentle with him. Rifq never came into something except that it made it beautiful, softness. And it was never taken out of anything except it made it ugly. Just be, be gentle, try to reconcile, try to get family members involved, try to you know, come to an agreement between you. And if it doesn't work, then, then you have to escalate it to the next stage of having somebody else try to solve the problem by the permission of Allah. Can you raise your hands when making dua? I mean, raising your hands when making dua is probably more of a fiqh issue to a certain extent. But yes, there are some mistakes people make. So I think the question is, when did the Prophet ﷺ raise his hands in dua? Was it every time? Or were there examples he didn't raise his hands in dua? So this is something that you could like look into and research. And with that research, you would be able to know when is it allowed or not allowed. I'll give an example. As much as I have found research, this is my research, what I can find, the Prophet ﷺ didn't raise his hands on the mimbar in Salatul Jum'ah. That's what I found. He didn't. Again, if someone can bring me a hadith and say, no, he did, he is the hadith, then khalas, no problem. But as I found but what from my limited research is that he didn't raise his hands on the mimbar in Jum'ah. So that could be an example. Uh, so it's something to look into like that, inshallah ta'ala. Also, there's another issue, which is separate. There's an issue of raising your hands and there's an issue of making dua in congregation as well. That's also a separate issue. Like, so don't mix them together. Yani. Like, for example, I raise my hands, Ya Rabb, you know, but the question is like, am I allowed to do that now together with people? When is that allowed and not allowed? Again, we go back to the sunnah. Look at it. When did the Prophet do it? Did the Sahaba used to dislike any kinds of dua together? Or did they not mind any kind of dua? For example, the people got together and they started making dua for Umar ibn al-Khattab and Umar went to, to beat them and he joined in. He didn't like them in that circumstance that they were in. He didn't like that they were gathering together and doing that. 
So there are some examples. You have to look at it and try to come to the, you know, to do some research on the topic. What skills should a female learn so she may earn a living? I mean, definitely there's no, the asal, al-asal, the, the basic principle is that it's not that the asal that a woman should work, right? A woman working is, yani, is an option, but it's not the asal. It's not the basic principle. The basic principle is the guy should be working to put the food on the table and the, you know, the money in the pocket. That's his problem. It should be. But there's nothing haram with her working if she fulfills three conditions. The first thing is her job is halal and doesn't involve any aspect of haram. The second thing is that she has the permission of her wali, whether or the husband or what, yani, her mahram, whatever it is. The third one is that she doesn't fall negligent in her duties to Allah that Allah has given her, such as responsibility for the household and the children that Allah gave her in the hadith we mentioned. Uh, what kind would you recommend? Wallahi, I personally would recommend um, things that don't have ikhtilat, mixing between men and women, work from home, things like that. Things where you can work away from the office, so IT is a good industry like that because you can work away from the office and often, and often people, you know, you don't have to have mix, mixing between people. You can deal with it by audio or you can deal with it by email and things like that. So that could be, and also things that are unique to women as well. You know, like there are some things that we, we you know, only women can do. So those are also recommended. But again, those are the conditions. I know it's getting time for, and then... I've already mentioned about scholars quoting Aristotle, so we can leave that one, inshallah. Uh, this one says, Is it true that Iblis is the father of the jinn? This is a matter the scholars differed over. So some matters of aqidah, there is ikhtilaf in it. The scholars differed over it. I believe the stronger opinion is he is the father of the jinn. Like Adam is the father of mankind. Because uh, of the statement of Allah, that I think this indicates that he is the father of the jinn. But many of the scholars took different opinions about it, and this is a matter which there is no agreement from Ahl Sunnah on it, so it doesn't make any harm. But you research it, and you, you know, from my research, I believe he is the father of the jinn. Wallahu a'lam. When a person dies, do the souls meet? And does a person know what has happened to their child? So this is an example, not Yawm Al-Qiyamah. We're talking about both like the parent and child dies. There can be something that is mentioned from Ali ibn Abi Talib, I recall. He mentioned it with regard to the statement of Allah, or he said, the other ayah in Surah Al-An'am. No, no, it's this ayah, I'm sure. In this ayah or the other ayah about uh, sleep and death, that he mentioned the statement of Ali ibn Abi Talib, radiallahu about the soul's meeting. This needs research as to its authenticity. And if it's authentic, then there's no doubt that Ali radiallahu anhu would not say such a thing يعني, with his opinion. He would say so based upon what he heard from the Prophet But I don't have the quote with me. You would have to look the quote up and you would have to research the authenticity of it. I don't recall it. But he mentioned basically to do with the dreams that when a person sleeps and their soul partially exits their body, so that partial connection can meet with some of the souls that have passed away. That's the khulasat al-kalam. But I don't recall its authenticity. Children come from divorced parents. How should I deal with troublesome toddlers? 
They lash out, they don't know how to communicate their emotions. How can I discipline them? They're under the age of six. With gentleness. Look, the Prophet ﷺ, Anas said, I, he said, خَدِمْتُ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ عَشَرَ سِنِينَ I served the Prophet ﷺ 10 years. فَمَا قَالَ لِي He never said to me, uff. And he never said to me, why did you do this or why did you not do that? So I mean by that, not that you never discipline your children. I just mean that in the matters of the dunya, be gentle with them. In the matters of the deen, encourage them, inshaAllah ta'ala. And discipline them in a way that's appropriate to their age. Because under six might not be mumayiz. The child might not have enough understanding of what's right and wrong. So in this case, you know, you have to be gentle with them. Gently discipline them that they still have a love for the deen. Habibullaha ila ibadih. The hadith of the athar of Abi Dhar. Make Allah beloved to his servants. But at the same time, discipline them in an appropriate way. But show them love and gentleness so that they come to love the religion and so that inshallah ta'ala they calm down in their behaviors. And if you feel that ruqya shari'a might calm them down, there's no harm in that inshallah. Is there any hadith that instructs us of any act or time where Surah Yasin should be recited? The strongest one, all the hadith about Surah Yasin are weak except one which has its borderline, which is laqinu mawtakum. Uh, Surah Yasin. This one, if there is an authentic hadith about Surah Yasin, it would be this one. And if it's authentic, then it refers to when the person is dying. And some of the scholars said that when the person is, is in the moment of death, that you can read Surah Yasin. Well, it needs some research because the hadith is, is to me, it's borderline. Yani, like there is, and all the other hadith about Surah Yasin, Fima Alam, they're all weak. Like Yasin, Qalbul Quran, and all of those there. La Yasihu Min Hashayi. Is it from the aqidah to follow the Muslim okay, all right. To follow the Muslim leaders in the Gulf and, and so on so on and so on. Uh, Ikhwani, the issue of aqidah. There are issues of aqidah relating to what they call mas'alatul imama. And we're gonna stop now for salah, but this is the last question. There are issues related to mas'alatul imama. What does mas'alatul imama mean? It means the matters relating to rulership. Sometimes they call it siyasa shari'a, they call it mas'alatul imama, the issues relating to rulership. And these masail, some of them are fiqhiya, they're fiqh masail, the books of the madhab. And some of them are aqadiyya. So from the masail aqadiyya is asam'u wa ta'a li wali al-amr, obedience to the Muslim ruler. And even if the Muslim ruler is a ruler of a country rather than the whole Muslims, they still have a sam'u wa ta'a fima ahallallah azza wa jal from the people that are in that country. Because that ultimately, at the end of the day, that is an asal min usul al deen. And it's mentioned in the books of Aqeedah. And it's mentioned in the hadith of the Prophet. Usikum bi taqwallah wa sam'i wa ta'a wa inta ammar alaykum abd. Or abdan habashiyan. Even if there is an Abyssinian slave in control over you, you should hear and obey. For this is an aqidah issue, but there are fiqh issues. From the fiqh issues is, how do we deal with different countries? One country has an imam, another country has an imam. This is not new, by the way. This has been since the end of al-Dawla al-Umawiyah, like right back in, the, oh, back in the days, that there have been different Muslim countries and rulers and things like that. How to deal with that is a mas'ala fiqhiyya. It's not aqadiyya at all. It's a fiqhi issue. 
how, what, where does the control extend over and to what? It's a fiqh issue, and it's mentioned in the books of fiqh. So this is another topic for another day, but it deserves a proper topic. And inshallah ta'ala, we have some modules for AMAU on that. We have al-madkhal ila mas'alat al-imamah, an introduction to the masail of ruling and rulership. And in it, we speak a lot about different rulers and different uh, fiqh issues and aqadi issues relating to the matter of which ruler you have to follow and obey. There would have been a better question than the Gulf because we're not in the Gulf. A better question would be, what do we do in a country where we have a non-Muslim ruler, but we are here in living here as an aqalliya, as a minority? That's a huge question. It has so much fiqh to it. It's a mas'ala fiqhiyya, well, masail fiqhiyya. Many issues related to it. What laws you follow and don't, and are you allowed to break them and not, and how, what, who do you take allegiance to, or who do you give your... Uh, who do you follow in this? But from the things that are said is that ulul amr in the Quran it means al ulama wal umara. Ulul amr, the word ulul amr, it means the scholars and the rulers. So here, if you're in a place where you do not have a Muslim ruler, at least you have scholars and people of knowledge, and those scholars and people of knowledge, inshaAllah ta'ala, will be able to assist you in giving the leadership to the religious community. Not leadership to the yani, political community, but leadership to the, to the Muslim community. Because if you do not have umara to give you that leadership, then you have ulama. And the scholars of tafsir yani, commonly mention this ulul amr. They are al-ulama wal-umara. So that's one issue. But there's so many issues about living as a minority and fiqh issues. There's a lot of stuff to talk about in that. And it's a mas'ala or masail worth studying and worth doing research on it. هذا والله أعلم والصلاة والسلام على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين إن شاء الله تعالى we are now going to finish and we start for صلاة المغرب بارك الله فيكم وجزاك الله خيرا جزاكم الله خيرا I really appreciate it everyone you listened so so well you attended and you gave your attention may Allah عز وجل bless you with the best of this world and the next may Allah عز وجل guide us to the truth and allow us to follow it may Allah show us the falsehood as false and allow us to keep away from it May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless us with beneficial knowledge and the ability to act upon it. That's what Allah made easy for me to mention. Allah knows best. Was salatu was salam ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.